I invite everyone to read it in full, to understand the scope and the gravity of the crimes charged. Special Prosecutor Jack Smith speaks about the 37-count federal indictment against former President Donald Trump. The 49-page indictment was unsealed this afternoon. It's Friday, June 9th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon, I'm Steve Brown. Coming up, the latest on this case against Donald Trump. Also ahead, a judge has temporarily blocked Florida's ban on gender-affirming care for kids. It's seen as a win for trans rights, but a chilling effect has left some providers and families confused on care. Homeless shelters handed out masks in schools, canceled activities as Baltimore residents endured another day of smoky air from wildfires in Canada. It's 401, now this news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. In an indictment unsealed this afternoon, it shows former President Donald Trump has been charged with 37 federal counts, including willful retention of national defense information and making false statements. This over the classified documents found at his Florida home. NPR's Carrie Johnson has more. Some of this was extremely highly classified material about uh, U.S. operations, about nuclear capacities of the U.S. and some foreign governments, and other top-secret information. The indictment alleges Trump stored in a storage room at Mar-a-Lago, in a bathroom at Mar-a-Lago, and in other places that were not secure enough for these kinds of government secrets. And Pierce Kerry Johnson. Special Counsel Jack Smith, who's been leading the investigation to the doc- documents rather found at Mar-a-Lago, says laws apply to everyone. Our laws that protect national defense information are critical to the safety and security of the United States, and they must be enforced. Meanwhile, two of Trump's lawyers quit today ahead of his arraignment on Tuesday in a Miami courtroom. At least 13 people are dead after a Soviet-era dam in Russian-occupied Ukraine was destroyed this week. Both countries say floodwaters are slowly receding, as NPR's Charles Maines reports. Russia and Ukraine continue to trade accusations over who was responsible for the destruction of the Soviet-era Kohovka Dam on Tuesday, just as each accuses the other of continued shelling to disrupt evacuation efforts from the ensuing floods. The Kremlin spokesman praised the Russian rescue mission and said President Vladimir Putin had the situation, quote, under control. Russian-installed officials say nearly 6,000 people have now been evacuated from the Russian-held area of the flood zone. Yet those figures came as Russian independent media portrayed the federal rescue effort as disorganized, with hundreds of residents trapped on roofs with little water and few means of communication. Charles Maines, NPR News, Moscow. A new 24-hour ceasefire between Sudan's military and a paramilitary group is scheduled to take effect early tomorrow. NPR's Ea Batrawi has more. The statement says Sudan's warring sides have agreed to stop bombardments and artillery strikes for 24 hours across the country. They also agreed not to use aircraft, resupply their forces, or try and advance militarily for the duration of this short ceasefire. Past agreements to pause the fighting, even for just a few days, failed to hold. The U.S. and Saudi Arabia say they share the frustration of Sudanese people about past ceasefires being violated, but say this latest attempt gives aid workers a chance to deliver humanitarian supplies. The U.S. and Saudi Arabia say they'll consider adjourning mediation talks if Sudan's military and paramilitary fail to observe this 24-hour ceasefire. Ayo Batrawi, NPR News, Dubai. 
Just ahead of the close, Wall Street trading higher. You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown in Boston. We have now more on the Trump indictments that were unsealed this afternoon. During a campaign appearance earlier today in Derry, New Hampshire, former Vice President Mike Pence said he was troubled by the federal criminal charges. Pence said he called on the Attorney General to unseal the documents immediately. No one is above the law. Secondly, it is important to note, from my years as your Vice President, the handling of classified materials of the United States is a serious matter. Pence accused the Justice Department of being politicized. Massachusetts Senator Ed Markey says the former president is not above the law. Other members of the Massachusetts delegation are calling for the legal process to play out. The head of the state Republican Party, Amy Carnavale, suggests the legal action is politically motivated. It's been well known that that he has retained these records, and it's no secret that um, that he's, he tends to get singled out for investigation and charges. So I, I would say, you know, it comes as no surprise to us at the party that this, this is being pursued. Carnavale adds that she's focused on rebuilding the Republican Party in Massachusetts and that the latest news about Donald Trump is background noise. Boston is getting ready for its first Pride Parade since 2019. It starts at 11 o'clock tomorrow morning in Copley Square and goes to Boston Common. That's where a festival featuring live music, community organization, and vendors takes place from noon until 6. A separate 21 and up festival will be held at the same time at City Hall Plaza. The community path along the Green Line extension in Somerville is set to open tomorrow. The path provides access to four stops between Somerville and East Cambridge. It also connects several bike and pedestrian pathways, creating a nearly 50-mile continuous network of paved off-road paths. The community path was originally expected to open six months ago. Sports Red Sox are in the Bronx tonight to take on the Yankees. It's the first of a three-game series. In the forecast, some strong thunderstorms have been passing through the area this afternoon. Cloudy with a chance of showers or thunderstorms tonight. Some of those storms could produce small hail. The lows will be around 53. Mostly cloudy tomorrow with scattered showers throughout the day. The high around 70 degrees. Right now it's 61 degrees in Boston. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Angie. Angie's List is now Angie, dedicated to helping homeowners get home projects done well, from everyday repairs to dream remodels. Reviews, pricing, and booking are at Angie.com or on the Angie app. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington. The federal indictment of Donald Trump that was unsealed today is now the second indictment of the former president, a former president who is again running for the Republican nomination for president in 2024. And yet most of his rivals for that nomination have so far steered clear of criticizing him for it. Why? NPR senior political editor and correspondent Domenico Montanaro is here. Hey there. Hey, Mary Louise. What is the answer to this question, Domenico? Why do the very people running against Donald Trump seem not to want to use this to their advantage? It is odd, right? I mean, most people in most years who would want to defeat someone they're running against would grab this like gold. But it continues to be the case that these candidates are trying to walk a very fine line in not upsetting Trump's base. And we should be clear that Trump's base, when we talk about them, it's not just some small cadre of his supporters, but it all, essentially almost all of the Republican rank and file voters. You know, Republican 
Republican pollsters will tell you that maybe only about 10% of Republican voters are quote unquote never Trumpers. Another third are pretty solidly in Trump's camp and the rest are maybe Trumpers, you know, people who voted for him twice, but are open to someone else this time around. Still though, they have pretty warm feelings toward him. You know, for just to show this, the Pew Research Center, for example, late, uh, late last year, asked a large sample of Republicans this question and 60% said they still had warm feelings toward him. It was far less than in April of 2020 when he was still president and before January 6th and eight in 10 Republicans said they had warm feelings toward Trump, but it's still a pretty sizable majority. And these candidates have really struggled in how to navigate, how to get them over to their side. Okay. And that Pew research you're citing, that was from late last year, but it doesn't seem that his legal troubles since then have affected Trump's trajectory. Is there any reason to believe it will change? No, it's been just the opposite. You know, what Republican strategists tell me is that in the short term, it's hard to see how this will change anything. And that these are people I'm talking to who are not exactly rooting for Trump. You know, what they say is that actually they expect for this in the short term to actually help him, um, that he'll be the center of every conversation for the foreseeable future. And many uh, base voters are wondering why in quote unquote similar circumstances, they say that they have, there haven't been the same pursue, uh, pursuit uh, from the Justice Department of people like President Biden or Vice, former Vice President Pence, who also had classified documents in their possession. And they ask why Hunter Biden, the president's son, hasn't gotten the same kind of attention. But the cases of Pence and Biden are really not analogous at all to Trump's situation because Biden and Pence discovered the classified documents in their possession themselves, gave them back, and the investigation into Pence has already been dismissed. The one looking into Biden's handling is still ongoing, but still really not all the same, not the same here at all. If Trump's rivals are not all over these charges against him, what are they talking about? It's being dismissed by them as the, quote, weaponization of law enforcement by people like, you know, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, who's, uh, you know, Trump's chief rival in this race. Senator Tim Scott said something uh, similar. He's uh, the senator from South Carolina, as have a host of other congressional Republicans. You know, these Republicans, they just don't want to go there. It's a bit of a chicken and egg for them, frankly, though. You know, many privately will say they don't want Trump to be president again, but they're following his base. But you have to ask, you know, if leaders of the party running against Trump, serving in leadership on Capitol Hill, are not willing to speak out against the former president, even when they acknowledge privately that these are serious charges, then how do they and why would we expect Republican voters to react any differently? Well, and that's the central question. How did we get to this point where multiple investigations, now a federal indictment, doesn't shift public opinion? Well, the seeds of this have been sowed for a long time, so that's pretty hard to uh, backtrack from. You know, Trump himself has has been criticizing the Justice Department and the FBI uh, for quite some time. We've seen mm -hmm. a decline in uh, you know confidence in these institutions that people once revered for quite some time here. You know, it's really been with Republicans where we've seen this steep decline. Recent polls have shown, for example, that two thirds of Republicans say they only trust the FBI some of the time or hardly ever, and a majority think FBI agents are biased against right. Trump. That is NPR's Domenico Montanaro. Thank you. You're welcome. In Florida, families of transgender youth are trying to figure out what a federal judge's ruling this week means for them. In scathing terms, Judge Robert Hinkle indicated that going forward, Florida's ban on gender-affirming care for trans minors will likely be found unconstitutional. But when he issued his preliminary injunction, Judge Hinkle only listed the three families who filed suit. 
That has caused both confusion and hope for other families and for the medical providers who treat trans youth. NPR's Melissa Block has this report and a warning to our listeners. Her story includes discussion of suicide and mental health. Lisa, the mother of a 13-year-old transgender girl in the Tampa area, says when she heard about Judge Hinkle's ruling, she allowed herself the smallest sense of hope. You know the expression, there's a light at the end of the tunnel, and I'm almost positive it's not a train? (laughs) That's kind of where we're at. You know, we got the merest glimpse that it's not a train, that it's actual sunlight. Lisa asked that we use only her first name out of security concerns. Florida's ban on gender-affirming care, such as puberty blockers or cross-sex hormones, carves out an exception for youth who've already started receiving those treatments. That would include Lisa's daughter, who has started on blockers. But what's unclear from the law's language is whether she can now move on to hormone replacement therapy. Critics say it's just one part of Florida's law that's deliberately nebulous. The state of Florida has created such an impossible situation for these parents. Simone Chris with Southern Legal Counsel brought the lawsuit challenging Florida's ban. It's not only a hostile landscape for their children, but it's also so ambiguous and vague and confusing, and there's no clear answers as to what is and isn't allowed. In a statement, Governor Ron DeSantis's office called the injunction extremely limited and said, quote, We will continue fighting against the rogue elements in the medical establishment that push ideology over evidence. It is expected the state will appeal. So where does this ambiguity leave providers who treat trans youth? Under Florida law, providing gender-affirming care to new patients under 18 is a felony. Knowing that, should providers risk prison time, risk losing their medical license, and assume that the judge's injunction also protects them? For Dr. Michael Haller, the decision is straightforward. He's a pediatric endocrinologist in Gainesville who treats trans youth. I feel an obligation to do whatever I can to try and protect their rights to receive the care that they feel is appropriate. And if that means that I'm going to have to do things that may push back on the state's interests, then, you know, so be it. Dr. Haller says even before the state's ban was finalized, it had a chilling effect. A number of Florida clinics stopped providing gender-affirming care to trans youth. And when they don't have access to care, you know, you can hear and feel that desperation. The words they use in their emails, the vibrato of their voice when they call asking for help, you can really just feel it. It's palpable. So, you know, I hope that this injunction will give people a little bit of a sense of relief. That's also the hope for Lisa, the mom we heard from earlier who told me her transgender daughter suffers from pretty serious depression. At one time when she was having pretty deep thoughts of self-harm, she just looked at me and she said, well, maybe if I'm successful, Florida will be happy. And that, that was hard to hear. And I, you know, how do you argue with that? Because I live in a red county. I live in a neighborhood specifically full of people who voted for all of these people doing this, and gleefully so. How do you combat that? Maybe, Lisa says, this week's ruling from the federal judge will help. I'm hoping that it eases her pain. I hope it eases it completely, but even even if it's just a little bit, I'll be happy. Melissa Block, NPR News. And if you or someone you know is in crisis, call or text the Suicide and Crisis Lifeline 988.
This week, the Northeast and the Mid-Atlantic dealt with some of the worst air quality for the area in recorded history. The culprit? Smoke from wildfires in Canada wafting south. WYPR's Scott Massioni tells us how residents have coped and when relief might come. It looked like 2020 when you stepped outside in Maryland this week. People were wearing masks and the streets were a little less busy than usual. The smoke obscured the skyline and concerned people with health issues. It's been really crazy. I mean, I had to really bust out my inhaler. I have it on me right now. Phoenix Barber's a student at the Baltimore School for the Arts. It felt like I was I swallowed a porcupine at one point. It was so like prickly and it made my throat like kind of like closing almost. Yeah. So I had like a lot of coughing and just uncomfort. Carly Peicher was out walking her dog in the smog, but wearing a mask to protect her lungs. Peicher's been watching the air quality levels. This week, the state government issued code red on that quality, meaning it's unhealthy for everyone. I'm not super educated on what that means, but it sounds kind of serious. So I, um, yeah, just wanted to protect myself. Particles in the air reached 27 times the World Health Organization's health guidelines. Not everyone was concerned about the air quality, though. Steve Drake's a delivery driver and is outside most of the day making those deliveries. Ah, today's just a little bit heavy. You can smell the smoke, but as long as it's not heavy and we can still see buildings, I don't think it'll bother us. By today, the air quality improved to some degree. Baltimore is now in code yellow, which means people who are unusually sensitive or have health issues should take precautions. Kevin Estep is one of those people. Estep coaches the Baltimore Bills, a semi-pro football team. His team's playing in the championship this week, but he had to cancel practice because he had a double lung transplant in 2019. Estep says doctors are likely to hospitalize him, even for a small cold due to that transplant. I knew that the day wasn't a good one for me, so that's why I called my doctor and see what's the best thing for me to do, and he basically shut me down. Totally. The city's already taken precautions against the smog. Free masks are being handed out at homeless shelters. Baltimore schools canceled outdoor recess and asked staff to keep windows closed. The city is discouraging people from holding events and exercising outdoors. Even though the air quality is improving, wildfires are still blazing in Canada, meaning it's possible smoke could choke the region again. For NPR News, I'm Scott Massioni in Baltimore. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown, 60 degrees in Boston at 418. Coming up in about 20 minutes, a profile of Special Prosecutor Jack Smith, who has filed serious charges against former President Donald Trump. That's ahead here on WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Empire Loan, with eight locations in New England, proudly recognizing the Lenny Zakem Fund, a public nonprofit charitable organization who's awarded over $12 million in grants to nearly 400 Massachusetts grassroots organizations committed to advancing social, economic, and racial justice. The LennyZakemFund.org. On Wall Street today, stocks closed higher. The Dow was up 0.13% at 33,877. NASDAQ was up 0.16% at 13,259. And the S&P 500 up a tenth of a percent at 42.99. In local business news, the Dave & Buster's entertainment chain will pay more than a quarter million dollars for violating Massachusetts labor laws. The company was cited by the state attorney general's office for not providing proper meal breaks, not obtaining work permits for minors, and allowing minors to work later than permitted by law. Dave & Buster's operates three Massachusetts locations in Braintree, Natick, and Woburn. This is WBUR.
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Fidelity Investments, reminding you it's never too early to start saving for your child's future. Learn more about a tax-advantaged 529 college savings account and how you can use the money to pay for qualified expenses at fidelity.com slash ufund. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Member NYSE SIPC. In the forecast, some strong thunderstorms are passing through the region this afternoon. We'll have an update from meteorologist Danielle Noyce in about 15 minutes. It'll be cloudy with a chance of showers of thunderstorms tonight. Some of those storms could produce some small hail. The lows around 53, mostly cloudy tomorrow with some scattered showers throughout the day. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Data IQ, a platform for everyday AI to help organizations make AI part of their daily business, designed to elevate people, teams, and companies. D-A-T-A-I-K-U.com. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement to support digestive health, containing a probiotic strain developed by gastroenterologists with 20 years of research. More at alignprobiotics.com. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Elsa Chang. And you know what? I have always been proud to say that I have never been stung by a bee. But just a few days ago, I was worried that streak was coming to an end. Is today going to be the day? Today Please is not, not going to be your day. Be the day. If it is, I have an EpiPen should things get out of okay. hand. But right. um, no, we're not going to get stung today. Okay. Yeah. Well, promises, promises. I'm talking to Leif Richardson there. He's a conservation biologist who leads a project powered by hundreds of volunteers. It's called the California Bumblebee Atlas. It's sort of like a census for bumblebees, a tool to help guide their conservation. I tagged along with Leaf to see how one of these sampling expeditions works, which meant meeting up in the mountains of Malibu. I've never seen insect nets like this except in the cartoons. <laughs> we got our bee nets and a small cooler because we are literally going to chill out the bees we find. It's a harmless way to calm them down long enough to photograph and study them. And today, Leaf has his eye on a particular species of bumblebee, one that he hopes will be the catch of the day. I want to show you today uh, Crotch's bumblebee, Bombus crotchii. This is uh, a big, short-haired, very beautiful bee that is a denizen of the warmer parts of California. Um, we're likely to see it today, oh. but it is in decline. So it's currently protected by state law, and it's under consideration um, for listing as, as a state-endangered species. So we set off. We're walking about a half mile down the trail. So this this is poison oak. I just oh, wanted to thank you. make sure that we... And we arrive at a field bursting with golden deerweed and purple sage. Leaf says this is a bumblebee buffet, but he warns us to slow down. Oh, what? Rattlesnake. Really? Wait, where? Right there. Right there. I don't even... We're really close to it. Let's look behind you and maybe take a step back. Oh it God. is a fat rattlesnake, a perfectly camouflaged in the brush. I would have totally missed it, probably it would have so stepped on it. So, so we decide to just stay on the trail where we can see our feet. And soon enough, it's time to catch my first bumblebee of the day. See the, where the bee is? She's just below the canopy top. Wait, wait, right, show me the bee. Oh. There. Elsa, do you want to catch that? I want to. Okay, here's Leaf my, tells me to pinch question. the tip of the net and hold it upside down. Then I slowly lower it over the flower where the bee is foraging. Lower it slowly Make a little, like, seven dwarfs hat. Mm-hmm. Okay. 
And then, okay, where did the bee go? Oh, there it is. Yeah. Okay. So and I'm just gonna go right like this. Down Boom. And I keep going down. Okay, is this a girl or boy? So I'm gonna oh. reserve judgment till I okay, get wait. better. This is when Leaf tells me I have to put my bare hand up inside the net with the bee still in there to trap it in a tiny vial. Oh my God, I got it, 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 Let's take it out of the net, okay. we'll find out. <laughs> Behold. Oh my Elsa's goodness. First get a nice Leaf takes a closer look and determines this is a male bumblebee, which means it doesn't have a stinger. So he reaches into the vial, pinches the bee with his fingers, and offers it to me. Yep. Oh my God, oh my God. If you feel him squirming away, squeeze a little harder. I'm holding a bee with my bare fingertips. Oh, he's squirming. I can feel his little legs scraping against my fingers. <laughs> And the fact that there are male bees out here tells Leaf that the coveted queen bees must be around here too. And remember, at this point, we're also still keeping our eyes peeled for that one species that Leaf had mentioned, the Bombus crotchii. And then boom, all of a sudden, we find a double whammy. Oh my God, that's huge. What is that? Queen? So this is a queen of crotchus bumblebee. That's a queen of the very species that we were looking for. And she was at least two to three times bigger than any other bee we saw that day. And you know, the excitement, it didn't even end there because we spin around and I see my editor, Christopher Intagliata, looking down in sheer horror. Oh my God, oh my God, Whoa! What is that? Christopher's covered with socks. When he realizes his legs are covered with hundreds of giant black ants. What are those? We frantically brush him off, hike up the trail a bit to get away from the ants' nest, and Christopher recovers. Does anything sting, Christopher? No, I think I'm... I think I'm mostly good. Meanwhile, Leaf puts the queen bee on ice in the cooler. Remember her? And I ask Leaf what gathering all of this bumblebee data up and down the state of California will teach people. We want to let people know what the status of bees is. Are there as many species now as there used to be? Are they all distributed in the same geographic ranges as they used to be? Or have they shifted their ranges because of climate change or habitat loss or conversion or something like this? And so this information that our volunteers are collecting is the information that is used to make conservation planning decisions. So ultimately, why should we care whether some of these species of bumblebees are disappearing? I think we should care because there's intrinsic value to these native animals that occur here and have been here co-evolving with these plants for millennia. However, beyond that, um, bees are functionally very important. They're pollinators of wild plants, but also these wild bees are really important pollinators of crops. So these wild bees are tremendously important to maintenance of healthy ecosystems, which human beings depend on and to the human food supply, which we obviously depend on. So we've got both utilitarian and kind of intrinsic reasons to conserve bees. One of the things that I have loved about today is we have talked about all the ways that bees are misunderstood animals. Because I've always been that person, when I see a bee buzzing around me, I'm like, ew, get away from me, please, get away. But I held my first bee today. I caught my first few bees today. I guess if you could speak to all those people out there who have decided they do not like bees, what do you think is most misunderstood about these animals? Uh, I guess it's that they're considered to be potentially dangerous, stinging 
venomous insects. Um, they are they are all of those things. But there is so much more about the way these these animals live. Um, they have this rich ecological life history. Um, they uh, they have interesting mating biology. I should mention another one is social biology. The biology of, of the nest is absolutely fascinating and it gives us a model for understanding social behavior in other bees and also other insects and vertebrates like us. There's a ton of interesting things about bees that um, I think if you look beyond the hypothetical dangers of, of being stung by one, that they're really interesting animals. True. Even I can look past the stinger because here I am asking Leaf to open the cooler now so I can touch the chilled out queen bee. Queen bee. Queen bee. Sleepy queen. Oh, oh, not so sleepy. Look at her. She's a flutter. As I stroke the queen's back, she raises up her leg, which Leaf says is a sign that she's not too happy. She's giving me the high five, which yeah. is really the middle finger. Yeah, that's right. It's the middle leg. She doesn't, she, like it. she doesn't like it, but she can't do much about it. But from the looks of her twitching wings, she's warm enough to take off now and find her way home. Okay, there she goes. There she goes right yeah. yeah. Wow. So they're really good at using landscape features to find their way. And She'll find use... her way, right? Yeah. Okay. And so the queen journeyed back home unharmed. And thankfully, so did we. Tight quarters in those vials. This is NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Good afternoon, I'm Steve Brown. Ahead on WBUR's All Things Considered, the Broadway adaptation of the 1959 classic movie Some Like It Hot is the most Tony-nominated show this year. That's ahead here on WBUR. In the forecast, some thunderstorms running through the area right now. It'll be cloudy with a chance of showers or thunderstorms tonight. Some of those storms could produce some small hail. The lows will be around 53 degrees. Mostly cloudy tomorrow with scattered showers throughout the day. The highs will be around 70 degrees. Sunday looks nice, though. It'll be mostly sunny. The highs around 78. Right now, it's 60 degrees in Boston. WBUR supporters include Comcast Business, providing businesses with cyber threat security designed to keep devices protected. Comcast Business, powering possibilities. And Bowery Boston, presenting Steve Lacey, James Blake, Toro Imois, and more at the stage at Suffolk Downs, Friday, June 16th. More at ResetConcertSeries.com. Recently on Wait, Wait, Maeve Higgins was disappointed to find out that Jeff Bezos got engaged to someone else. I'm just a bit, I'm just like, I thought he was into me. He's always sending me little gifts in the post. <laughs> <laughs> Things I need for my house. Offers. I'm Peter Sagal, and this week's Wait, Wait, we'll be talking to everybody, but thinking only of you. Join us for the news quiz from NPR. Saturday and now Sunday at 10 on 90.9 WBUR. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. Former President Donald Trump is facing 37 felony charges related to the mishandling of highly classified documents held at his Florida estate. The federal indictment unsealed today alleges that Trump showed classified documents to others. It says he described a Pentagon plan of attack and shared a classified map related to a military operation. This is the second indictment of Trump and his former vice president, Mike Pence, calls it disturbing. I think it's deeply troubling uh, to see an indictment 
against a former president of the United States. I, I had hoped that the Department of Justice uh, would see its way clear to resolve this matter without an indictment and said so uh, earlier this week. Pence is one of several GOP hopefuls competing with Trump for the 2024 Republican nomination for president. The Justice Department began investigating last year after Trump allegedly refused to return the sensitive documents, which were stored in a bathroom, bedroom, shower, even a ballroom on his Mar-a-Lago property. The European Union's 27 member states have agreed on a plan to enact tougher asylum and migration policies. And Piers Rob Schmitz has that story. The agreement was reached after years of disputes and hours of tense negotiations as several EU members were not happy with the compromise proposal. In the end, member states agreed to each accept a share of asylum seekers or pay into a fund that would be managed by the EU to help those seeking asylum. The chair of the negotiations told reporters that if an asylum applicant had no chance of receiving asylum in the EU, they would be returned to either where they came from or an alternate safe country. Additionally, all applications for asylum will now have to be processed within a maximum period of six months. Germany's interior minister is calling the agreement an historic success for the EU. Which This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown in Boston. More now on the indictment of former President Donald Trump. Congressman Seth Moulton calls it yet another sad day in American history. Trump faces 37 charges, including willful retention of national defense information. If proven guilty, Moulton says it would be an unprecedented breach of the law. Melrose Congresswoman Catherine Clark tweets, equality before the law is the foundation of our democracy. There's a line of thunderstorms moving through the area. WBUR meteorologist Danielle Noyce joins us now. Good afternoon, Danielle. What are you seeing on that radar? Well, Steve, you know, there's a couple of showers over the city of Boston right now, but there's a plenty of downpours out there, too. The nastiest line is from Tingsboro to Drake it up through Methuen right now. It's all moving east, so places like Lawrence... Andover, Tewksbury, Billerica are going to be next. There's some torrential rain with these, and there's even been a history of some small pea-sized hail today, mm. so just don't want that to catch you <laughs> off guard. There's some real heavy rain that extends up through Manchester, and then some real heavy downpours with pea-sized hail right over on Bridgewater and Plimpton and Halifax right now, too. Yeah, down my way. Okay, what should we be on the lookout for over the next hour? So I'd say in the next hour, all of these um, cells are drifting slowly east-southeast. So the South Shore and then southeastern Massachusetts is going to be into it, Merrimack Valley as well, Essex County. So the city of Boston is kind of removed from the heaviest downpours now, Mm -hmm. um, but all of this is going to slowly drift east. So I'd say in the next hour or two especially, you may see some torrential downpours, brief rumbles of thunder, nothing severe, but we've had some localized flooding in southern New Hampshire, so expect that to continue in the next hour too. Sure. When do you think all this unsafe? settled weather will move on. Oh, it's been a rough week, right? Yeah. This this big upper level low Steve has been sitting over us. We're finally finally going to kick this thing out of here this weekend. So, I still think there'll be a couple of showers around tomorrow, but it's just hit or miss stuff, nothing like today. Uh, and then the sun's going to come out particularly by Sunday and highs will go well into the 70s. So, this is like the last really unsettled day of this stretch that we've had. Sure. Speaking of tomorrow, a lot of people are going to be heading out into the city for the Pride Parade and Festival. Uh, Should they bring their rain gear just in case? Listen, I'm one of those that's better to be safe than sorry, so I do not think it's going to be raining the entire day by any means, and I don't think it will be as widespread as today. But that being said, there is about a 30 to 40 percent chance you get a passing shower. So I'd have it. I think it's better off you have it, have the hood to pop up with an umbrella just in case um, for 
tomorrow afternoon for sure. Okay, thank you very much, WBUR meteorologist Danielle Noyes, keeping an eye on the weather for us this afternoon. It's 435. WBUR supporters include the Peabody Essex Museum, presenting As We Rise, photography from the Black Atlantic, opens June 17th. More at PEM.org. And Complex Stories, working to turn big ideas into compelling videos, online experiences, presentations, reports, infographics, and more. ComplexStories.com. In sports, the Red Sox are in the Bronx tonight to take on the Yankees. It's the first of a three-game series. Garrett Whitlock is expected to be on the mound for the Sox. Garrett Cole gets the start for the Yankees. And more in the forecast. Again, chance of showers, thunderstorms tonight. Could get some hail. The lows around 53. Mostly cloudy tomorrow. Scattered showers throughout the day. A high near 70. Sunday looks nice. Mostly sunny. The highs around 78 degrees. Right now it's 61 degrees in Boston. This is 90.9 WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Plymouth Gin Distillery. Plymouth Gin is imported from England's southwest coast, distilled using a blend of seven botanicals, including juniper berry, coriander seed, and citrus peel. Plymouth Gin since 1793. From Indeed, a hiring platform for helping businesses of all sizes attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one place. More at indeed.com NPR. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington. If you are trying to keep track of all the names of people caught up in Donald Trump's legal troubles, here's two you can deprioritize. Jim Trustee and John Rowley, Trump's attorneys, make that former attorneys. They resigned this morning from representing him, part of the fallout from this federal indictment. Meanwhile, one name to keep an eye on, Jack Smith, the special counsel who pursued these criminal charges against the former president to do with classified documents. Let's bring in Georgetown University law professor and former federal prosecutor Paul Butler. Good to see you. Hey, Mary Louise, great to be here. So you've read this indictment. It was just made public this afternoon. It includes among other allegations, that Trump and his aides misled the FBI about keeping hundreds of sensitive documents at a crowded public resort, that they allegedly stored them among other locations in a shower. The charges are eye-popping. How serious are they? Uh, Very serious. This is what prosecutors call a speaking indictment, meaning it tells a story that anyone can understand. In the simplest version, the indictment accuses the president of taking sensitive documents pertaining to national security that he knew didn't belong to him, including documents related to the country's nuclear programs and documents about how the U.S. might respond if it were attacked. And when he was asked to return these documents, not only did he refuse According to the indictment, he conspired with his valet to keep them from the government and to cover up what he'd done. There have been lots of accusations against Donald Trump over the years. There's never been anything this detailed and this consequential in terms of Trump's criminal exposure. Even if Trump is convicted in the Manhattan case, he is unlikely to go to prison on those counts. For the crimes listed in this federal indictment, Mary Louise, even first-time offenders usually get jail time. What kind of signal does it send that his attorneys quit this morning? That's very hard to read. 
when there's a first appearance in court, as there will be on Tuesday, the defense attorneys have to file what's called a notice of appearance. After that, they have to get permission from the judge to withdraw from the case. So this may just be a sign that Trump is revamping his legal team. Sometimes when people are investigated and they actually get indicted, they get mad at their defense attorneys. And I gather they said this had to do with the timing was right because the case is shifting to Miami. So we'll we'll watch that space. I want to ask about Jack Smith, the prosecutor, because I know um, you worked with him. You worked in the same DOJ section that he once led. What should we know about him? So, yeah, different times. We were both prosecutors in the unit of the Justice Department that prosecutes public corruption. He was the chief. He's worked as a state, federal, and international prosecutor almost his whole career. Today, he did kind of what the accompaniment man would do. He let the indictment speak for himself. He's known as being an aggressive prosecutor, Uh kind of a true believer in holding people accountable, and especially in bringing corrupt public officials to justice. And just a very quick fact check here. You talked about that these charges do carry sentences of years. Theoretically, could Trump run for president from prison, yes or no? Uh, Nothing in the Constitution prohibits Trump from running for president, either under these accusations or even if he's convicted. All right. Paul Butler, Georgetown University law professor and a former federal prosecutor. Thanks for coming in. Always a pleasure. It had been billed as the future of finance, but the future of crypto will be shaped by major lawsuits filed this week against two companies that run some of the largest platforms for buying and selling cryptocurrencies. Wall Street's top cop says those exchanges are illegal. NPR's David Gura joins us now to explain what's at stake. Hi, David. Hey, Elsa. All right, so let's start with that allegation in these lawsuits. Why do regulators say these exchanges are illegal, specifically? So the Securities and Exchange Commission has brought more than a dozen charges against buying Finance and Coinbase. And while I know those aren't household names, these companies are big players in the world of crypto. And what the SEC argues is they have to register their crypto exchanges with the agency. They have to comply with existing regulations in the same way, you know, a traditional stock exchange has mm-hmm. to. Neither company has done that so far. And what you have to understand is this goes against a really central tenet of crypto, which is that by design, it's supposed to operate outside of traditional finance, outside right. the oversight of government regulators. Mm-hmm. So that's what's at the heart of these two lawsuits, Elsa, which are really a direct challenge to the way that many crypto companies do business. I mean, the way you're talking about it makes this sound like this whole fight is almost existential then. It's exactly how it's been described to me by analysts and by former regulators. You know, there are critical, yes, existential questions here. Are crypto companies going to have to operate the same way traditional finance firms do? Or are they going to continue to exist in this regulatory gray area? Timothy Massad is the former head of another federal agency that's interested in crypto. That's the Commodity Futures Trading Commission. The outcome of these cases, whether that's determined by court decision or settlement, will basically determine the shape of crypto regulation in the U.S. Wow. Okay. so what do these lawsuits mean then for people who buy and sell crypto? So, look, this has been a pretty rough stretch for crypto. What's been called a crypto winter set in after the collapse of FTX late last year. Of course, that was the big crypto company run by Sam Bankman-Fried, who now faces a slew of criminal charges. After FTX went belly up, prices sank. So did enthusiasm for crypto. And now there's this sense this is going to undermine confidence even more. In fact, immediately after the SEC filed these charges, Elsa, customers took hundreds of millions of dollars worth of cryptocurrency out of Binance, out of Coinbase. That is way more than usual. Wow. 
So then what does all of this mean for crypto more generally? Well, think? I think it's important to note that although cryptocurrencies have become more popular, according to a recent report, only 12 percent of American households own them. But Stephen Glagola, an analyst who covers Coinbase for TD Cowan, is optimistic these suits are going to help the industry long term. I think that the outcome of this will be more transparency for uh, investors broad based in, in cryptocurrency uh, and in crypto assets. We're at this place where all signs seem to indicate there will be clearer rules. But what's unclear, Elsa, is whether they'll come from the courts or they'll come from Congress. I mean, yeah. Is there a chance that Congress could step in and just settle all of this? The short answer is yes. You have to keep in mind it will take many months, if not years, for these suits to work their way through the courts. And while that happens, the industry is going to be focused on Congress. You know, crypto companies believe it's up to lawmakers to set clear guidelines, clear rules of the road for crypto. They say regulators shouldn't be relying on laws that were written really decades before crypto became a thing. Now, we have seen bills introduced that do address crypto directly, but of course, You've covered the Capitol, Elsa. You know that Congress <laughs> is going to Congress. Yep. And it's unclear when or if uh, we're going to see an up or down vote on crypto legislation. That is NPR's David Gura. Thank you so much, David. Thank you. Support for All Tech Considered comes from Data IQ, a platform for everyday AI to help organizations make AI part of their daily business. Designed to elevate people, teams, and companies. D-A-T-A-I-K-U dot com. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Twitter is going through one of its most challenging periods ever. An alternative called Blue Sky has been getting a lot of attention. In the meantime, it is still small, but it's backed by Jack Dorsey, who also founded Twitter. And Pierre's Bobby Allen is here to tell us more. Hey there. Hey, Mary Louise. Is Blue Sky the next Twitter? Hard to say just yet, but it is the buzziest social media site right now. And that's because... As we know, ever since Elon Musk purchased Twitter back in October, the platform has just been really rocky. It's been less reliable, less trustworthy, and people have been looking around to find, trying to find another place to go. Um, Blue Sky was actually started back in 2019 by, as you mentioned, Twitter co-founder Jack Dorsey. Oh, so while he was running Twitter, he started this? While he was running Twitter. Okay. And he did it because he wanted to sort of try out a new kind of social media site. And it's different because, well, there's a few ways in which it's different. The, the first is that on Blue Sky, you'll be able to sort of customize your, your own experience. You'll be able to kind of tune up and tune down things based on your preferences. Say if you want more baseball on your feed, you can tune that up. Say you want less weather, you can tune that down. And the whole idea is to be able to sort of say, we don't want this centralized algorithm dictated by a company. Instead, let's put the power in the user's hands and people are flocking to it. Um, just consider this stat though, Mary Louise, there are just 100,000 people on Blue Sky mm -hmm. and there are more than 2 million people on the waiting list. So it's kind of the coolest party on the internet right now that everyone's trying to get an invite to. Uh, did you get invited? I did get invited. And What's it look like? It looks like Twitter. It looks like a, a beta version of Twitter, um, you know, 
the people who are Twitter diehards are also on Blue Sky. It's kind of a nerdy lot, I would say. Um, there's a number of, uh, you know, tech journalists. There's some politicians. There's some, uh, you know, just people who love to use Twitter every day are also now using Blue Sky. It's You're starting to see communities pop up that really got Twitter a lot of momentum early on. Communities around uh, academic circles, journalistic communities, various cultural groups. Um, but yeah, it's it's right now, it's it's small, it's sort of clubby, but people are saying, hey, maybe it is going to be the next Twitter because many people are trying to jump ship. Yeah, and I gather another difference is that if you were to leave Blue Sky, you could take your followers with you. Exactly. That there's a there's a very technical term for this called interoperability, and in plain English, that means if say a billionaire came in and purchased Blue Sky, say a very mercurial billionaire who likes to rule by chaos, not going to name any names, but say that happened, you can leave Blue Sky with all of your followers and with all of your data to another social media site. Now, traditionally. Um, you know, social media sites like Twitter do not work like that. They kind of have a moat around them. You're trapped there with all of your followers and all of your data, and you can't take it anywhere, which is one of the reasons why, despite Elon Musk's sort of mayhem-filled reign of Twitter, people are still there. Um, and that's because, as we know, it's kind of the front page of the internet. It has power in numbers. It's where news happens. It's where people turn to during natural disasters. It's where, you know, politicians and celebrities are making news. Yeah, while I've got you, Bobby, briefly catch me up on where all these other Twitter alternatives stand. People at, at one time were going to Mastodon or Post or other places. Yeah, there have been a bunch. And for a variety of reasons, none of them have really taken off. But... Blue Sky does have potential. Uh, at the same time, I have to say it could also just be a flash in the pan. We've seen social media sites like this come and go before. But whatever happens, we'll be here following along. And PR's Bobby Allen, thank you. Thank you. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Serta Pro Painters, professional exterior and interior painting for your home or business. Learn more about their painting services at certapro.com. That's Serta with a C. And Long Hill and Beverly and Stevens Coolidge in North Andover revitalized North Shore Public Gardens and historic homes. Information at thetrustees.org slash gardens dash revitalized. Ahead on WBUR is all things considered. The Justice Department has unsealed the an indictment against former President Donald Trump and one of his aides, charging Trump with unlawfully retaining government secrets and obstruction. That's ahead here on WBUR. WBUR supporters include Babson. Top-ranked in entrepreneurship by U.S. News & World Report, Babson's MBA prepares you to tackle global challenges. Babson.edu MBA. And BG Catering Concepts, corporate and social event planning and catering for special occasions. BGCateringConcepts.com. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. This is On Point. I'm Tiziana Deering. This is Radio Boston. I'm Scott Tong. I'm Deepa Fernandez. I'm Robin Young. It's Here and Now. And I'm Lisa Mullins, host of All Things Considered. We all thank you so much if you made a contribution to our recent fundraiser. And if you haven't had a chance to, you still can. Give monthly at WBUR.org. Thanks. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Ari Shapiro. 
The Tony Awards are this Sunday night, and the show with the most nominations is a musical that reimagines a classic 1959 movie. The film Some Like It Hot was forward-thinking for its time. It's about two men who witness a mob hit. To escape, they dress as women and join an all-female band headed for Florida. By today's standards, the movie feels a bit dated. Look how she moves. That's just like jello on springs. Must have some sort of built-in motor or something. I tell you, it's a whole different sex. So Matthew Lopez and Amber Ruffin, who wrote the book of the new musical, had to find a way to make this period piece work for today's audiences. For example, we knew that we wanted this show to not be as monolithically white as the movie was. The movie is 100%, as best I can tell, white. And if you remember, in the movie, they take a train down to Florida. And it was basically like hour two of day one. We were like, well, you put one black person on that train. They're not going to Florida. I feel naked like everybody staring at me. We're California bound. No one's staring at you, but ooh, I like what I see. Because it's, well, the movie's 1929, the musical is 1933. Black people in Florida had a very different experience from white people. They're still having it. They really are. But I think that, so setting it in California. So decisions like that was the first thing we did, writing the book, the musical. That's interesting because you could have made a decision to do colorblind casting. Like, let's not pay any attention to race whatsoever. And instead, you have three main characters, arguably four, who are not white, and that is a part of the plot, that is a part of the characterization. That is, like, essential to the version of the story that you're telling. Talk about that decision. It wasn't on purpose in every case. Sometimes it was just the person we loved the most, and then we were like, you know what? If she's going to be black, let her be blackity-black. And when I'm laid out on judgment day, Sweet Sue is one of those characters who saw a big change. She's the band leader. Another character who had a transformation is Daphne, who starts out as Jerry. In the movie, he's played by Jack Lemon. In the musical, the non-binary performer Jay Harrison G plays the role. Because tonight I realize Daphne is my one true love. And could have knocked me over with a feather you could have knocked this train off its track for, for me the reason i said yes to the show was so that i could help do what we did with daphne yes i have tried to love many ladies back when i sang in a much lower key now you could knock me over with the feather Cause Joe The lady that I'm loving is me 
Jay came along and took what was there and instantly elevated it. And that gave us something to write toward. So then the desire to do something was matched by the ability to do it when Jay came along. Can we also talk about the character Sugarcane, who in the film is, of course, iconically played by Marilyn Monroe. I want to be loved by you, just you, nobody else but you. And uh, you did not cast a blonde bombshell. You did not write this character as a blonde bombshell. Tell me about the direction you took this character. I mean, it was important to me that Sugar Cane not be an idiot, but also have some flaws. You know what I mean? Like, it, 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 that used to fly, where you could get a whole meal off of, I'm a girl. And I don't know what I'm doing. Oh, I got tricked. Like, but you can't do that anymore. It, I mean, n- no one has the stomach for it. So then it was really delightful to find out who Sugar was in fitting in this whole show. Because so many things has to happen to her. She goes on such a journey, you know, that you figure out who she is along with the story. And Adriana certainly isn't hurting anybody. That child is fantastic. This is Adriana Hicks who plays the role. The movie's set in 1929. The stage show is set in 1933. A small change that makes a big difference. Explain that. We wanted to have the, 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 just the subtle pressure of the depression pushing these characters towards making any decisions that they make and also creating headwinds toward progress that they might be making in life. Uh, we wanted to set it at the end of Prohibition so that they're also faced with the question of what do we do next? Let's raise a glass of lawful liquor, my pets, for the 21st Amendment has just been ratified. And that spells the end of prohibition. We don't want to end the show with the the crash of 29. (laughs) That would be so sad. (laughs) We'll have to choose the Sunday kind of celebrating. The positive is what will now be Amber Ruffin and Matthew Lopez, congratulations on your Tony nomination and on having written the book for the most Tony-nominated show this year, Some Like It Hot. Thank you so much. Thanks, Ari. Yay, thanks for having us. (laughs) Woo-woo. Yay. thought when we boarded that train that all the lights in Hollywood would spell sugar cane. Yes, MGM's coming. The band's made a killing. And we can still be partners. Yeah, but who gets top billing? No more hiding.
You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Nature Conservancy, partnering with communities across the globe to find solutions to the climate and biodiversity crises, committed to building a future where people and nature can thrive. Nature.org slash solutions. From Workday, committed to helping organizations adapt to change, using real-time data to uncover insights, stay decision-ready, and prepare for whatever's next. The finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. And from Progressive Insurance with Snapshot, a personalized program that bases rates on safe driving habits. At Progressive.com, not available in California and North Carolina or from all agents. This is NPR. I'm senior business reporter Yasmin Amr. This is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Our laws that protect national defense information are critical for the safety and security of the United States and they must be enforced. The Justice Department has unsealed an indictment against former President Donald Trump and one of his aides charging Trump with unlawfully retaining government secrets and obstruction. It's Friday, June 9th. This is All Things Considered. Good afternoon, I'm Steve Brown. Ahead on WBUR, the latest on the Trump indictments. The former president is expected in court next week. Also ahead, Europe's largest nuclear plant has lost access to its primary source of cooling water. Fortunately, its reactors should be safe for at least a few months with the water that's available on the site. The spread of police body cameras has increased accountability for police dogs as well as human officers, making it easier for defendants to claim unconstitutional searches. And California's homelessness crisis has hit the resort city of Palm Springs. It's 5.01, now this news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. Special Counsel Jack Smith, who led the investigation into the classified documents held at Mar-a-Lago, broke his silence today. NPR's Deepa Chevron reports Smith made remarks from the Justice Department saying his office will seek a speedy trial. Smith spoke for only a few minutes and did not take questions from reporters in the room. He said the laws that protect information about national defense are, quote, critical, and they must be enforced. We have one set of laws in this country, and they apply to everyone. Applying those laws, collecting facts, that's what determines the outcome of an investigation. Nothing more and nothing less. Smith said it was important for him to note that the defendants in the case, former President Trump and his aide Walt Nada, must be presumed innocent until proven guilty. Deepa Shivaram, NPR News, Washington. Former President Donald Trump is facing 37 felony charges related to the mishandling of classified documents. The White House says it has intelligence indicating Iran is providing Russia with materials to build a drone manufacturing plant east of Moscow. That says the Kremlin looks to lock in a steady supply of weapons for its ongoing invasion of Ukraine. White House National Security Council spokesman John Kirby says U.S. intelligence officials believe a plant in a Russian special economic zone could be operational by early next year. Officials also released satellite imagery taken in April of the industrial location where it believes the plant will probably be built. Sudan's foreign ministry says the U.N. envoy to the country is no longer welcome. The U.S. and U.N. are backing the officials, been a key mediator in a conflict between two warring generals there. 
More from NPR's Michelle Kalaman. The foreign ministry says it has informed the U.N. Secretary General that his envoy, Volker Perthes, is now persona non grata in Sudan. U.N. spokesman Stefan de Jarik is pushing back. The doctrine of persona non grata is not applicable to or in respect of United Nations personnel, and its invocation is contrary to the obligations of states under the Charter of the United Nations. The envoy is currently in Ethiopia, and it's not clear when or if he'll be able to get back to Sudan. Sudan's army has been pushing for his ouster as he tries to resolve a conflict between the army and a rival paramilitary force. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, Washington. A number of major pharmaceutical companies say they've completed a deal that would send $19 billion to states that accused them of fueling the opioid crisis. Deal, among other things, reportedly infusing more money to those hard-hit communities. Most states say they They've agreed to settle with Teva Allergen and pharmacy chains CVS and Walgreens. Settlement an additional and even larger $26 billion settlement with drug distributors. The broader market continued to edge further into bull market territory. The S&P was up four points today. You're listening to NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown in Boston. Before the Trump indictments were unsealed today, former Vice President Mike Pence made a campaign appearance in Derry, New Hampshire. Pence, who is running against his former boss, said the indictments are politically motivated. I had hoped the Department of Justice would see its way clear to resolve these issues with the former president without moving forward with charges. And I'm deeply troubled to see this indictment move forward, believing it will only further divide our nation. Massachusetts Senator Ed Markey says the legal action shows the former president is not above the law. President Trump is going to be indicted, uh, but under a law which applies to everyone else, the espionage law, saying he cannot steal documents, hide them, he cannot lie about it, he cannot obstruct justice. Other members of the Massachusetts delegation are calling for the legal process to play out. The head of the state Republican Party, Amy Carnevale, suggests the legal action is politically motivated. She says she's focused on rebuilding the Republican Party here in Massachusetts. The MBTA today announced additional service changes this month on the red, green, and orange lines. There will also be commuter rail service changes on the Greenbush, Kingston, Plymouth, and Middleborough-Lakeville lines. The T says they need the shutdown to perform critical track work so they can lift additional speed restrictions. A complete list of service changes this summer can be found on the MBTA's website. A Suffolk County jury has found a former prosecutor not guilty on charges of raping a young woman in her North End apartment seven years ago. The jury returned its verdict on Gary Zarola this afternoon. The Suffolk DA's office says it's disappointed in the verdict and adds there's a pending case against Zarola involving similar allegations in 2021. Heavy rain will slow down the commute in some areas today. WBUR meteorologist Danielle Noyes says those storm cells are moving slowly east-southeast. So the South Shore and then southeastern Massachusetts is going to be into it, Merrimack Valley as well, Essex County. So the city of Boston is kind of removed from the heaviest downpours now, Mm -hmm. um, but all of this is going to slowly drift east. So I'd say in the next hour or two especially, you may see some torrential downpours, brief rumbles of thunder, nothing severe. Mostly cloudy tomorrow with scattered showers throughout the day. The high is around 70 degrees. Sunday looks nice, mostly sunny, the high around 78. Right now, 61 degrees in Boston. This is WBUR. WBUR supporters include Fisher Investments. As a fiduciary, Fisher Investments is obligated to act in their client's best interest. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. 
On a Friday, it's All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. The Justice Department has unsealed an indictment against former President Trump. He's charged with unlawfully retaining some of the country's most closely held secrets and storing those papers in his Florida resort. Special Counsel Jack Smith made brief remarks about the case in Washington. We have one set of laws in this country, and they apply to everyone. NPR Justice correspondent Carrie Johnson has been reading through the court papers and joins us now. Hi, Carrie. Hi, Elsa. Okay, so what jumps out to you in this 49-page indictment? Really, how personally involved Donald Trump was in packing these boxes as he left the White House in January 2021, bragging about secret materials in two meetings in 2021 with people who did not have security clearances, mm. changing his travel plans to be at Mar-a-Lago when the Justice Department came calling, and then allegedly directing his own lawyer to mislead the FBI about what kinds of papers Trump had there. Okay, so the bulk of this case, it's about retaining classified material. So what more do we know about those specific documents? And that's right. 31 of the 37 charges against Donald Trump relate to keeping those papers. The indictment says those secrets belong to the CIA, the Pentagon, the National Security Agency, and the Energy Department. That last one is important because the Energy Department has a special responsibility around nuclear secrets. Right. And the indictment says Trump kept documents about U.S. capabilities, but also the nuclear capacity of foreign governments. All of this was just sitting at Mar-a-Lago. At one point, some boxes fell down and the papers were just lying on the floor. And a former FBI official told Congress this week some of these papers were so classified, he had to call in outside help. He did not have clearance to see the stuff himself. Interesting. Well, former President Trump has been saying that he is an innocent man. What do we know about his defense in this case? Uh, Trump has been fundraising off this grand jury activity in Florida all week. He's said these charges amount to election interference because, of course, he's in the middle of a campaign for the White House in 2024. Mm -hmm. And he's also questioned the ethics of some of the investigators without providing much evidence about that. The scope of his defense is unclear right now, in part because two of his lawyers resigned earlier today. Right. They're Jim Trustee and John Rowley. They'd been defending Trump on TV, but they said now the case has moved to Florida. They're going to bow out. So that means some more chaos in the short term. Well, there has been a flurry of action already just over the last day. What are you personally looking for next, Carrie? I'm going to be looking for Trump and his aide, uh, Walt Nada, who's also part of the indictment, when they're scheduled to make an appearance at a federal court in Miami on Tuesday afternoon. They'll have the charges against them read. And for now, it seems the judge who will preside over that is Aileen Cannon. She was appointed by Donald Trump, and she made several rulings that were favorable to him before she was reversed by the federal appeals court last year. And the special counsel, Jack Smith, says he wants to have a speedy trial. It's not clear Trump will file follow that program, it's possible he'll want to file a bunch of motions that could delay things. And a short time ago, his campaign put out a statement saying Trump violated no laws, that he's being held to a different standard, and that uh, they're confident uh, the justice system will throw out this case in its entirety. Well, we should note, Carrie, that this is not the end of Trump's legal troubles with more investigations still underway, right? That's right. Special counsel Jack Smith is still investigating efforts to overturn the 2020 election. And in Georgia, the DA there has said she expects action to come by August. More to come. That is NPR National Justice Correspondent Carrie Johnson. Thank you so much, Carrie. Happy to be here. 
Following the destruction of a critical dam in Ukraine, water levels at a large reservoir are dropping fast, and that's creating new problems at the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant. NPR's Jeff Brumfield has more on why the plant needs water to stay safe. Nuclear power plants generate a lot of heat. Keeping them cool takes lots of water, which is why the Zaporizhia nuclear plant sits on one of Ukraine's largest reservoirs. Or it did until this week. Something destroyed a dam holding back the reservoir. In just a matter of days, the water level has already dropped by 20 feet. The Zaporizhia reactors aren't in crisis just yet. Alexei Kovinev, a former operator at the plant, says it has a large artificial pond it can draw from. It's about Two miles maybe in diameter. It's very big water body. Plant operators have been slurping all the water they can out of the falling reservoir and into the pond. The International Atomic Energy Agency believes it should be enough for several months. That's also in part because the reactors need less water right now. Now the plant is shut down. So all six reactors are in this shutdown state. But even shut down, radioactive fuel can continue to produce heat for years. With the reservoir unavailable, the plant will need to find more water at some point. The IAEA says options include wells, the local water system, and even mobile pumps for bringing water in from elsewhere. Setting up those alternative systems will take manpower, though, and the plant's workforce has dwindled under brutal Russian occupation. Jacopo Bongiorno is a nuclear engineer at MIT. The question is, do they have enough people to perform these actions that will have to be performed if you get to these sort of scenarios? Um, I think they do, but who knows? If the reactors do run out of water, then the fuel inside could start to melt down. That could lead to some kind of radioactive release. But Bongiorno says because the reactors have already been shut down for months, it won't be anywhere near the type of catastrophic meltdown that took place at the Ukrainian Chernobyl site in 1986. There is just not enough heat at this point. So those scenarios are just not, not in the cards. Still, he says any meltdown would permanently ruin the Zaporizhia reactors, leaving Ukraine without a vital source of electricity. Jeff Brumfield, NPR News. The widespread adoption of body cameras has transformed the public's view of policing, making it easier to hold officers accountable. Increasingly, that's also true of police dogs, especially drug-sniffing canine units. NPR's Martin Costi has the story. In March of last year, Alex Schott found himself being pulled over on I-35 in Texas. In the video, you can see the sheriff's deputy is friendly. Hey, how you doing, brother? Uh, the only reason I'm stopping you is when I was watching over there, you were drifting over that fog line pretty hard. I just want to make sure everything's okay. The deputy says he's just giving Shot a warning about drifting out of his lane. But then he starts quizzing Shot about what's inside his truck. You have any marijuana in the vehicle? Any cocaine? Any heroin? And that's black or brown? Shot calmly says no to this whole list. And then the deputy asks this. Right. Would you allow me to search your vehicle? Prefer not. Okay. Shot replies, I'd prefer not. And at this point, the deputy has no legal right to search the pickup, unless. What I'll do, we have a canine pretty close, so I'm going to have a canine come out and do a walk around your vehicle. That Drug sniffing dogs, canines, are sometimes called probable cause on four legs, because if a trained dog signals outside your car, then the police can search it. And that's just what happened with Schott's pickup truck. This scene has played out thousands of times on American roads over the decades. 
What's still relatively new, though, is that the canine handlers are now wearing body cameras, which gives us clear, up-close views of how they handle their dogs. And in this case, the video clearly shows that the handler waves his right hand at the dog right before the dog jumps up on the truck's door. To people like Lewis Katz, this looks suspiciously like the handler is prompting the dog's reaction. I don't know that I've ever seen it so blatantly as in this case. Katz is emeritus professor of law at Case Western Reserve, and he's written extensively about canine searches. Over the years, the courts have simply had to trust canine handlers when they affirm that the dog alerted to a smell independently. But now, with the advent of close-up body cams, that may finally change. It's up to defense attorneys to start insisting on discovery of the body camera and to watch the officer's behavior. The Bear County Sheriff's Office won't comment on this case because Schott is suing them in federal court, accusing the handler of prompting the dog. If you want to judge that for yourself, we have put the video on our website. We also showed the video to longtime canine trainer Andy Falco. Yeah, that um, appears to be a cue of some sort that he gives the dog. Falco gives expert testimony in trials involving these searches, and he says video is becoming much more important. In one of his recent cases, the Idaho Supreme Court threw out a whole drug case just because the video caught a dog improperly putting its paws on the car. I think it's good for the canine units that these things are out there. It'll just make them better and make them train harder. Others disagree about the effect of the cameras. Oklahoma canine trainer Ted Summers says video needs to be interpreted. People have dogs. There's this misnomer, and, and I deal with this all the time, that because somebody has a dog, they're already some kind of expert on dog behavior. For instance, when Summers looks at that video from Texas, he sees the dog already showing interest in the truck's door before the handler waves his hand. The dog handler is the only person in the world that is the subject matter expert on that dog. Summers says if anything, video tends to bolster the credibility of canines, making it harder to accuse the handlers of making secret cues. Back in Texas, Alec Schott still drives that pickup. I want to get rid of this truck as fast as possible. It's bad memories every time I get in it. He points out the lingering traces of the search. They went through everything in his truck, and even the dog helped. Slobber everywhere, dog hair, scratches in the leather from the claws. They pulled out everything out of the glove box. They never found anything illegal, and the sheriff's office eventually paid shot for the damage to his truck. But he's still suing on constitutional grounds. He's represented by Christy Abair, an attorney at the Austin office of the Institute for Justice. There's all sorts of problems with our government not having to have a good reason to pull you over and to conduct a search. And this lawsuit is about ensuring that when the police stop you, they have to have a good reason to stop you and to search you. And the police's reason, or more to the point, the police dog's reason, is now a lot more open to review. Martin Costi, NPR News, Austin, Texas. You're listening to All Things Considered. And good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown at 60 degrees in Boston at 518. Coming up in about five minutes on WBUR, a study has found that many children from historically underrepresented communities don't know how to swim. That's ahead here on WBUR. 
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MIT Museum, with captivating exhibitions and dynamic programming that turn MIT inside out. Curious what the buzz is about? Plan your visit today. And Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed property at findmassmoney.com. On Wall Street, stocks closed the day higher. The Dow was up 0.13% at 33,877. NASDAQ up 0.16% at 13,259. And the S&P 500 up a tenth of a percent at 42.99. In local business news, getting seniors with early-stage Alzheimer's insurance coverage for a drug made by Cambridge-based Biogen takes a big step forward. The FDA advisory panel is unanimously backing full approval of the drug Lecambi. This comes about six months after the FDA gave conditional approval based on early results that the medication apparently slowed the progression of the mind-robbing disease. The agency is now going over additional data as it decides whether to grant full approval. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Ocean State Job Lot, partnering with customers to help animals in need by donating to animal welfare organizations, rehabilitation farms, wildlife centers, and nonprofit rescue organizations throughout the Northeast. OceanStateJobLot.com. If you're used to watching TV when and how you want, well, now you can do the same with listening to the radio. You can pause and rewind live radio with the new WBUR app. Download it at the App Store today. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Easy Cater, committed to helping companies from nonprofits to the Fortune 500 manage food for work with online ordering from restaurants nationwide, budgeting tools, and payment by invoice, easycater.com. And from Organic Valley, a farmer-owned cooperative dedicated to providing ethically sourced food from small organic family farms across the country. Learn more at ov.coop slash ethically sourced. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. California's homelessness crisis is usually seen as a problem for the urban centers of Los Angeles and San Francisco. But smaller, less equipped cities are also seeing an increase, and they are struggling to manage growing homeless populations. Anna Scott from member station KCRW reports from the desert city of Palm Springs. It's late afternoon in downtown Palm Springs. The sidewalks are full of pedestrians, shoppers, diners. There's an olive oil tasting room and a clothing store with floral dresses and straw hats in the window. In other words, this is a cute resort town, even in this 100-degree weather. Do you live here in Palm Springs? Ten years, yeah. Curtis Havens is holding an iced coffee and watching an unhoused shirtless man rummage through a trash can. It's heartbreaking. Yeah, you know, and I don't know. Yeah, it's a growing problem, absolutely. This year, officials with Riverside County, where Palm Springs is, reported an 8% increase in homelessness in the city over last year. The entire county saw a 12% increase. The vast majority of the areas unhoused live outdoors. Near the eastern border of Palm Springs, where golf courses and hotels give way to gas stations and fast food restaurants, you can see a few tents and RVs from the road, scattered around acres of sand, rocks, and scrubby plants. Oh man, the only thing you can do here in the desert is just dig hole deeper and deeper into the ground and kind of make a cave to like cool off, try to keep yourself in the shade. Robert Soria is sitting on a crate inside his four-man tent in that desert wash. He's set up a canvas canopy over the tent, too, to block the sun. 
He says his criminal record has made it hard for him to find work, which makes it hard to afford housing. You know, it's hard because not all homeless are screw-ups. I didn't give up. You know, I'm still trying. And I'm trying to work out to get, you know, get myself off, you know, off of this. And I, I did my time in prison. I came out. I want to live again. There aren't many shelter beds or outreach workers inside Palm Springs. Day-to-day -day management of the crisis largely falls to the cops, even though Palm Springs Police Chief Andy Mills says it's not really a law enforcement issue. This shouldn't be at the police because it's just, it's enormous. This year, the Palm Springs Police Department started a strategy that involves getting to know unhoused people in the city and referring them to resources when possible. Like other cities, Palm Springs is grasping for ways to bring unhoused people indoors. And Chief Mills says he'd rather a professional service provider take over the outreach and referrals. Do we really want the police with that much power to be the person who decides whether this person gets housed or not when we don't have the education or the training to do that? Palm Springs officials are building a new homeless service center. They're working on it with Riverside County officials, like Greg Rodriguez, who helps run the county's Housing and Workforce Solutions Department. It's about a $39 million project, a navigation center, um, with the you know sheltering component, full wraparound services, and then 80 transitional units on that site as well. But it's not permanent housing. Rodriguez says the big driver of homelessness in Palm Springs is the same as in cities like L.A., a lack of affordable places to live. Over the last two years, Riverside County has had one of the country's fastest growing rental rates. At the same time, while there are a few projects now under construction... There hasn't been an affordable housing unit built in the city of Palm Springs in over 12 years. And until policymakers in Palm Springs and the state capitol find more urgent ways to create low-cost housing, this desert city won't be the only one facing a growing homelessness crisis. For NPR News, I'm Anna Scott in Palm Springs. In summertime, many Americans head to the pool or the beach to cool off and have fun. But many kids don't actually know how to swim, especially in historically underrepresented communities. NPR's Anastasia Siokis recently spent time with one New York organization that's working to change that one lap at a time. On a sunny spring day, a small group of teenagers are in the pool in the basement of a high school on Manhattan's Lower East Side. Their teacher is another teenager, Carmel Renas, who's 17. She's a teacher at a nonprofit organization based in New York City called First Strokes. They try to remove barriers to learning. They provide goggles, swim caps, and suits, and the lessons are all free. The water can be your best friend and your enemy, and we're really working to have the water be students' best friend and slowly they're developing a relationship with the water. The classes are led by fellow teens who are certified as lifeguards, including Carmel. She says learning to swim isn't just for fun, it's a public health issue. According to the CDC, drowning is the second leading cause of death among children. Jeremiah Rogel took some lessons when he was a little boy, but says he wasn't really comfortable in the water. Jeremiah is now 18. He's from Williamsburg, Brooklyn. I definitely feel a lot more confident now. I feel like I can swim a lot more and a lot better than I was earlier because now I know how to swim faster. 
and I know a lot more techniques like cupping, diving, breaststroke. I know how to do all that better. One of his swim classmates is 19-year-old Isaiah Torres from Manhattan's Lower East Side. I think I'd honestly do this for the rest of my life. It's kind of just become a hobby now. I kind of do it even when I'm tired or upset. I'll go anyway just to do it. It's just become a regular now. Learning how to swim is an intergenerational challenge, says Michelle Macy. She's a professor of pediatrics at Northwestern University and a doctor at Lurie Children's Hospital in Chicago. Macy led a study last year that found many parents don't know how to swim, and that situation is especially true in Black and Latinx communities. Less than 5% of our white population had never learned to swim. With our Black population, about a quarter of them had never learned to swim, and for our Hispanic parents, it was up to a third. And according to USA Swimming, 79% of children from low-income families have low to no swimming ability. Macy says a lot of parents never had the chance to develop swim skills when they were growing up, and many of their neighborhoods didn't have access to public pools or lessons. Carmel Renas says she sees this intergenerational issue with her own students. A lot of our students are first-generation swimmers. Their families have never swam. They have a fear of the water, and we're really working to have the water be a place that they're comfortable and excited. Miriam Lynch is the executive director of the organization Diversity in Aquatics. She says even in areas that are lucky enough to have public pools, access to them is declining. There's a labor shortage. There's simply not enough people signing up to work as lifeguards. If there are not lifeguards, pools are not opening. And if pools are not opening, then we're not doing water safety. So when we're not having swim lessons, then we're not progressing kids towards opportunities in aquatics. And then if we're not creating opportunities in aquatics, then guess what? We're not creating more lifeguards. Carmel Winas at First Strokes in New York says their goal is to help reverse that cycle. Now some of our students are even working towards their lifeguard certification. They're going to protect their peers in the water and be ambassadors of swimming and pools in their community. Carmel and her fellow organizers are working on expanding First Strokes to serve teens nationwide and get as many as possible safely into the water. Anastasia Tsilikas, NPR News, New York. This is NPR. In a surprise 5-4 decision, the Supreme Court ruled this week in favor of black voters in an Alabama voting rights case. Redistricting is destiny in an era of highly polarized voting. I'm Susan Davis. How that decision in an Alabama case could change the congressional map in many states and might even shake up the 2024 election. That's tomorrow on All Things Considered from NPR News. Thanks for listening to 90.9 WBUR. Ahead on All Things Considered, we'll have a conversation with astronaut Peggy Whitson about her most recent trip to space commanding a private company mission. That's ahead here on WBUR. In the forecast, we'll have some showers tonight. Thunderstorms could have some small hail. The lows will be around 53. Right now, 60 degrees in Boston. WBUR supporters include UMass Chan Medical School, ranked by U.S. News & World Report as best in New England for primary care education. Learn more at umassmed.edu. And New Art Center in Newton, with full-day summer art camps for 1st through 12th graders. More information at newartcenter.org.
Hi, it's Margaret Lowe, WBUR CEO, here with a big thank you to everyone who gave so generously this week. Our goal was to find hundreds more people who would commit to giving every single month, which is what will sustain us for the long haul. And you responded. Your outpouring of support is galvanizing, and it will fuel our journalism. If you didn't have a chance to give and you'd still like to, go to WBUR.org and click the Donate button. It's the one with the little heart next to it. Thank you. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. The Department of Justice says former President Donald Trump risked the national security of the country by storing sensitive material he was no longer authorized to have in his possession. The Justice Department unsealed an indictment today showing Trump faces 37 felony charges related to classified documents from his daily briefings, which included sensitive information about the CIA, Pentagon and National Security Agency, to name a few. Here's NPR's Carrie Johnson. One of the most important contributions this indictment makes, and it is just an indictment, a set of allegations, is how personally involved Donald Trump was in the packing and the monitoring of these boxes, starting on the day he left the White House in January 2021 and moving into 2022. The indictment says that he had two meetings with people who lacked security clearances, the last year uh, in that basically um, he showed them or referenced highly classified material to them and made statements to the effect, uh, you're not supposed to see this, uh, this material is secret. NPR's Carrie Johnson, Trump is due in court in Miami on Tuesday. A real estate investor at the center of the impeachment of a suspended Texas Attorney General, Ken Paxton, has been indicted. From Texas, Sergio Martinez Beltran has more. According to the indictment, Nate Paul told financial institutions in Connecticut, New York, California, and even Ireland that he had more in liabilities and cash than he actually did. In one instance, Paul reported having $31.6 million in cash when he knew that account had less than $500,000. Paul is a key figure in the impeachment of suspended Republican Attorney General Ken Paxton. According to Texas House investigators, Paxton used his office to intervene in a federal investigation against Paul, who is also his political donor. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown in Boston. We have more now on the Trump indictments that were unsealed this afternoon during a campaign appearance earlier today in Derry, New Hampshire. Former Vice President Mike Pence said he was troubled by the federal criminal charges. Pence said he called the attorney general to unseal the documents immediately. No one is above the law. Secondly, it is important to note, from my years as your vice president, the handling of classified materials of the United States is a serious matter. Pence accused the Justice Department of being politicized. Massachusetts Senator Ed Markey says the former president is not above the law. Other members of the Massachusetts delegation are calling for the legal process to play out. The head of the state Republican Party, Amy Carnevale, suggests the legal action against Trump is politically motivated. It's been well known that, that he has retained these records, and it's no secret that, um, that he's, he tends to get singled out for investigation and charges. So I, I would say, you know, it comes as no surprise to us at the party that this, this is being pursued. Carnavale adds that she's focused on rebuilding the Republican Party here in Massachusetts and that the latest news about Donald Trump is background noise. 
Today's the 70th anniversary of the most deadly tornado in New England. On this day in 1953, a powerful tornado roared through Worcester and central Massachusetts. 94 people were killed. The twister was on the ground for 84 minutes and traveled 46 miles. Debris from the tornado was found as far away as Boston and Cape Cod. Over the next week, New Hampshire roads and highways will be jammed with bikers. The world's oldest motorcycle rally starts tomorrow. The 100th Laconia Motorcycle Week will run until Father's Day, June 18th. New Hampshire's Office of Highway Safety is using the event to launch a campaign to promote motorcycle safety. It's 535. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MGM Music Hall at Fenway, presenting John Oliver, live on August 27th. Tickets at mgmfenwaymusichall.com. Sports the Red Sox in the Bronx tonight to take on the Yankees. It's the first of a three-game series with the Yankees. In the forecast, cloudy with a chance of showers and thunderstorms tonight. Some of those storms could produce some small hail. The lows will be around 53 degrees. Mostly cloudy tomorrow with scattered showers throughout the day. The highs will be around 70. Sunday looks nice, mostly sunny. The highs around 78. Right now, 60 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Raymond James, a firm focused on transforming lives, businesses, and communities through tailored wealth management, banking, and capital market solutions. Learn more at RaymondJames.com. And from BritBox, with the latest season of Father Brown Season 10. This and more mysteries following unofficial detectives, including Miss Marple and Jonathan Creek, streaming at BritBox.com NPR. This is NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. Federal authorities unsealed their indictment against former President Trump today, making him the first former president to ever face federal charges. Trump is named in 37 counts, among them willful retention of national defense information, making false statements, and conspiracy to obstruct justice. All this is connected to Trump's storage of classified documents at his home in Florida, Mar-a-Lago, documents that were found in an office space, a ballroom, a shower, and a bathroom. For what happens next, we go now to Leslie Caldwell, former assistant attorney general for the criminal division of the Justice Department. Welcome. Thank you. So very first impression, how strong is the evidence outlined in this indictment, you think? So the indictment is um, what's known as a speaking indictment, which means it lays out in detail a lot of the facts. Mm -hmm. Um, And the the facts as laid out in the indictment, or I should say the allegations as laid out in the indictment are, to me, they were quite stunning. Um, Very detailed, very specific, very clear. Okay. Well, one specific thing I want to mention is this indictment also cites comments, specific comments that Trump made on the campaign trail, like this remark at a 2016 speech in North Carolina. In my administration, I'm going to enforce all laws concerning the protection of classified information. No one will be above the law. No one will be above the law. How do you think prosecutors will use statements like that as they proceed in their prosecution of this case? So I think that those statements will be used um, to show that he understood the significance of classified documents. Mm -hmm. Uh, He understood the importance of keeping them confidential and secret, um, and that this was not an inadvertent misunderstanding or anything of the like. That This was a, a person who was well 
well aware of the significance of these documents and um, and chose to keep them and conceal them and, uh, and cause others to make false statements about them as alleged in the indictment. On the conspiracy to obstruct justice charge, I'm curious, how does this case stack up to you with respect to the many other obstruction cases that you've personally prosecuted? How would you measure this case compared to them? So I think this is, it was fascinating to read the indictment because I think one of the most striking things about the indictment, to me at least, was the extent to which it, which it alleges uh, President Trump's actual personal involvement in various things, including directing the movement of boxes, asking whether things really had to be returned or turned over, um, inducing lawyers to make essentially false statements to the government. I was surprised actually to see the extent to which he was personally involved on an ongoing and pretty regular basis in what was happening with these documents. Hmm, interesting. Well, you know, Leslie, this case, you know, it was put in the hands of a special counsel to avoid the appearance of any political interference from the Biden administration on this case. Having worked at DOJ for as many years as you had, how possible is it truly to separate the actions of the DOJ from the administration that the department serves when it comes to cases that a special counsel is handling? It's actually quite possible. In fact, that's really kind of the whole idea of a special mm -hmm. counsel is to separate them from both from political influence and also from the Justice Department itself so that they will be operating independently and will exercise their own judgment, obviously subject to the approval or veto by the Department of Justice, by the Attorney General. But um, that's kind of the whole point. And I think everyone involved is extremely careful to make sure that those lines don't get crossed. It's not just some imaginary firewall. No, absolutely not. So ultimate question, your personal view, how likely is a conviction here for the former president? That is very hard to say, particularly at this early juncture. I mean, all that I've seen so far is the actual indictment itself, which obviously, obviously is just an allegation. Uh, Mr. Trump is presumed innocent until he's proven in a court of law to be guilty. A lot can happen between now and then, assuming we go down that path. Um, and it's really, I think, way too soon to say. But certainly the indictment is very clear, uh, very concise, very specific, uh, very, I think, easy to understand. And I think it's actually, um, it lays out a very damning story if the allegations prove to be supported by evidence, by sufficient evidence. Leslie Caldwell, former Assistant Attorney General for the Criminal Division of the Department of Justice. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. The biggest buzz in Miami this week was not the news of the indictment of former President Trump or that the Miami Heat is trying to stay alive in the NBA Finals. No, it is word that soccer legend Lionel Messi will play for MLS Club Inter Miami, even if details of the deal are not yet known. Veronica Zara-Govia of member station WLRN in Miami spoke to fans in the city's Argentine community. They are anxiously awaiting Messi's arrival. 
The Pelé soccer shop on Miami Beach sells jerseys from teams all over the world. Store manager Hudson Michel grabs a stack of pink ones, certain that these will become bestsellers. That's because these are Inter-Miami FC jerseys. Michel peels off the plastic over black letters spelling Messi's name. He uses a heat press machine to add it on the back. So business going to be booming. Traffic is definitely going to be crazy, but hey, he's one of the best players ever. He's the GOAT. The GOAT, or greatest of all time, confirmed the rumor in an interview with the Spanish outlet Mundo Deportivo. I made the decision, I'm going to Miami, Messi said. On the same street of the soccer store, Armando Gomez scrolls through dozens of WhatsApp messages that keep his phone buzzing. Están todos comentando de que quería el calor de Miami. My friends are commenting that Messi wanted the heat of Miami, the warmth of the people, the Latinos, Gomez says, and he's from Venezuela. But a lot of Latinos around here hail from Argentina, just like Messi. One of them, Florencia Friedlander, works as a server at a nearby Argentine cafe in South Beach. People will pack the stadium, she says, and Argentinians will line up for days because that's what we do. After all, South Florida has one of the largest Argentinian communities in the U.S. Americans are not so used to showing emotions like we do. We're passionate, she says, and if you add Messi to the mix, the passion boils over. Ethan Reta, whose father is from Argentina, plays in a Miami Beach soccer club. Everywhere I went, yo, did you hear about Messi? Did you hear about Messi? It's crazy. People can't get enough of it. I'm really excited to be able to watch the greatest player of all time play like in my own city. It's crazy. Inter-Miami could really use the kind of excitement generated by the man who won the last World Cup. The team currently sits at the bottom of the MLS Eastern Conference standings. But already, ticket prices are soaring for soccer matches later this summer, when Messi might be playing. For NPR News, I'm Veronica Saragovia in Miami Beach. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. The Oakland A's are 14 and 50, the worst record in Major League Baseball. But that might not be the worst of it. At home, the A's are playing to a mostly empty stadium as the team is working to pull up stakes and move to Las Vegas, like their football cousins the Raiders did a few years ago. As Brian Watt of member station KQED reports, fans in Oakland are fed up and demoralized. No matter how big or small the crowd is at the Oakland Coliseum, a signature part of seeing an A's game there is the committed group of fans in the right field bleachers and hearing their drums. But after the A's owners announced just days after the season started that they had plans to move and build a stadium in Las Vegas, fans stopped drumming and found a new protest chant. They're trying to goad A's owner, John Fisher, a billionaire heir to the Gap retail empire, into selling the team. Right now, the owner owns the team, but it's not theirs. You know, it's the community's. That's Jorge Leon, president of the Oakland 68s, an A's fan group. The A's have been alienating the fan base for a while. I mean, it's nothing new. And so 
Now it's kind of like the last straw and, and people are tired of it, you know. Indeed, for years, the A's have traded away their best players, angering fans. After dismantling their roster before last season, they raised ticket prices. This season, they're on pace to have the worst winning percentage in modern Major League history. Leon and other fans have taken to making hand-drawn banners to voice their frustration. He and his wife, Michelle, whom he met at an A's game, are duct-taping signs to a railing in a largely empty right field section. That one is baseball before billionaires, and then stay. The A's belong in Oakland. Others say sink Old Navy and boycott Banana Republic poking at the A's owner's Gap retail pedigree. On a recent weeknight, typical for this season, only around 5,000 people sat in a coliseum built to hold more than 60,000. Despite rising exasperation and ownership, some lifelong fans are still showing up just to root for their home team. Rick Valdez drove to Oakland from Clovis, California, some three hours away. If they go to Vegas, I might go to one series a year, but I'm an A's fan. You know, I don't want to see them leave Oakland. Uh, I don't want to see them go anywhere but here, you know. Uh, but at the same time, if they go, they go. I'm, I'm still going to follow them. Um, at least that's my mindset now. The Oakland 68s fan group is urging all fans to come to this coming Tuesday night's game for what they're calling a reverse boycott to fill the seats and show ownership and Major League Baseball that fan support for the A's remains strong despite all their woes. For NPR News, I'm Brian Watt in Oakland, California. This is NPR News. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown. It's 60 degrees in Boston at 548. Coming up in about 15 minutes here on WBUR, the latest on the indictment unsealed this afternoon against former President Donald Trump. That's here on WBUR. WBUR supporters include Gore Place and live music outdoors in the spacious Century Tent, featuring traditional and classical music Wednesdays in June and July in Waltham. Goreplace.org. In sports, the Red Sox are in the Bronx tonight to take on the Yankees. It's the first of a three-game series. Garrett Whitlock is expected to be on the mound for the Sox. Garrett Cole gets the start for the Yankees. In the forecast, cloudy with a chance of showers or thunderstorms tonight. Some of those storms could produce some small hail. The lows will be around 53 degrees. Mostly cloudy tomorrow with scattered showers throughout the day. High around 70. Sunday looks nice, mostly sunny. The highs will be around 78 degrees. Mostly cloudy on Monday with a chance of showers after 11 a.m. A high of 78. Tuesday should bring showers. The high near 74. Right now it's 60 degrees in Boston. This is 90.9 WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Zevin Asset Management, committed to impact investing and socially responsible portfolios for 25 years. Learn how to invest sustainably at zevin.com.
Non verrore, terrore. And jazz. Dua, 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 dua. Uncovering their shared history and influences. It's a great legacy, and I'm enjoying putting them back together. Where else but New Orleans? That story and all the latest news, economic, political, and smoky. Saturday and Weekend Edition from NPR News. Tomorrow morning at 8 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. If you've ever traveled somewhere that left you so enthralled you wanted to go back over and over, then you get how Peggy Whitson feels about space. Woodson is an astronaut, the first woman to command the International Space Station. She broke the American record for cumulative days in space, 665. Well, that was back in 2017. She told NPR that same year she was probably done, but that she would miss it. Anyone that's ever gone to space is always wanting to go back. You get addicted to it. So addicted that last month, at age 63, she unretired and signed on as commander of the AX2 mission for a private company, Axiom Space, where she works as the director of human spaceflight. On board with her, three paying passengers, including Rayana Barnawi and another Saudi astronaut. Peggy Whitson, welcome back to Earth. Well, it's uh, I would say it's great to be back, but it was great to be up there, too. So <sighs> it was it was a great experience all around. What made you say yes to this mission? Because you told us back in 2017 you thought you were done with going to space. I, I thought I was done because I didn't think there would be opportunities. Luckily for me, Axiom Space um, had these opportunities come become available. And I, of course, signed up with a jumping up and down kind of a response. Oh, really? Like, what was, did they, they didn't have to pitch very hard to persuade you that you should sign (laughs) on? No, no, absolutely not. What appealed to you about, I mean, you've spent your career at NASA. What appealed to you about a private mission? Space really is changing, you know, the character of space and how it is, exploration is occurring. You know, if you look at even the NASA missions going to the, returning to the moon, lots of different private space companies are involved in that process. And and that includes uh, Axiom Space, for instance, who who are building the spacesuits that'll be used by the NASA astronauts as they step on the moon again. Hmm. It's so interesting. I was going to ask you, is the future of space exploration private? If I'm hearing you right, it's it's a you see it as a partnership that that public and private are going to have to work together going forward. Oh, absolutely. I think it's a it's a worldwide a relationship of different companies and peoples. And that's what makes it such a special time to be a part of the mission because, you know, there are going to be many more opportunities in the future and uh, trying to expand that horizon as part of, of my initial steps here. It's a lot of fun for me to be making history in that kind of way. So talk to me about some of the work you did on this mission. I I gather among the research projects that you and your crew worked on was one involving cancer cells. How did that go? That was great. That was one I was involved with. They were looking at different types of cancer cells. Uh, They like to use zero gravity because the cells grow a little bit more like they do in your body and maybe a little bit faster. And that helps them test things like drugs uh, to prevent them or to reduce the effects of, of 
the growth uh, in space. And so it was exciting for me uh, to be a part of one of those studies. Um, and, you know, as a, as a life scientist, I really enjoyed, you know, the stem cell research and all the life sciences type research that we were doing. I mentioned how deeply experienced you are. What is the the weight of being in space and commanding crew members who who are rookies who've, who've never been up there before? Well, I've I've actually flown before with numerous uh, uh, rookies, and um, you know it's actually I think kind of fun because you get to relive the experience of being there through their eyes. You know, it's like watching a young child experiencing something for the first time and in my case i get i got to see on this mission three people experiencing space for the first time so it was a lot of fun for me to relive my my experiences well through them do you feel the wonder of it all over again of looking down and thinking oh my god that's earth well and just you know the wonder of uh you know, learning how to fly in space uh, you know float around and you know be effective and just that sheer joy of being able to move so easily and in my mind gracefully. I don't feel like I'm particularly graceful here on Earth. <laughs> and then I want to ask about recovery now that you're back on Earth. You you returned last week. Um, do you get that jet lag? I'm thinking if I fly to Tokyo, <laughs> it takes me a week to feel to feel human again. What's it like coming home from space? There was a little bit of in essence, jet lag. We were on Greenwich Mean Time um, while we were in space. And so, you know, it's a five hour difference between here and uh, central time. And so, you know, there is a little bit of that jet lag going on that, you know, those feelings of whether they're neurovestibular, you know, being a little bit off balance, those to me seem to recover much more quickly uh, after this short flight than they did after my long flights. Um, So, so I, I do think your body learns a little bit from it, and and I do think duration makes a difference on on the impacts. Is it true that your nickname is Space Ninja? <laughs> yeah, my last space flight when I broke the the U.S. record, um, Jack Fisher, my crewmate on board, he uh, named me the Space Ninja. <laughs> <laughs> is this and- a nickname you wear with pride? <laughs> Oh, uh, yeah, actually, I, 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 there could be a lot worse names. I think it's kind of a cool one. I um, would agree. So I, I I like it. Yeah. And he spent the whole mission trying to get the ground team to call me the Space Ninja. <laughs> and so, and eventually they did. <laughs> I mean, I'm asking in part because I remember when you talked to us before, uh, a few years ago, you you were wrestling with seeing yourself as a role model. And I wonder, how about now? Does that mantle sit, rest a little easier? Yeah, it does. And it it was actually one of the things I shared with Rayana, being the first Saudi woman in space. You know, I told her, hey, it's a short mission. You got to start owning this before you fly. (laughs) And, you know, I tried to help her on uh, what what, uh, fact that she needed to actually embrace the fact that she is a role model and will be a huge role model in her country. Oh, that's interesting. So you're role modeling how to be a role model for for the yeah, next generation. Because I, I I struggled with that some, so I wanted to make sure she started off on the right foot. So I got to ask: Are you done? Was that the last trip? Not if I get another chance. I love it, astronaut Peggy Whitson. Thank you so much for being with us today, and welcome home. 
All right. Thank you so much. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Subaru and its retailers, partnering with the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society this June to give blankets and messages of hope to patients facing cancer. Learn more at Subaru.com care. From Capital One, offering their premium travel card, VentureX. Capital One, what's in your wallet? Details at CapitalOne.com. From Mattress Firm, dedicated to providing personalized service with the goal of helping people achieve quality sleep. Customers can shop their range of products in-store or online at mattressfirm.com. And from the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, helping NPR advance journalistic excellence in the digital age. Good afternoon, I'm Steve Brown, 60 degrees in Boston at a minute before 6 o'clock. Ahead in a few minutes here on 90.9 WBUR, former President Trump is facing his second indictment, and yet his Republican rivals largely aren't criticizing him for it. That story and more ahead here on 90.9 WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Ocean State Job Lot, partnering with customers to help animal welfare organizations throughout the Northeast. OceanStateJobLot.com and Fort Point Arts Community, celebrating living and working in the state's oldest artist co-op building. Visit now through August 11th, Atlantic Wharf Gallery, fortpointarts.org. I'm WBUR arts and culture reporter Cristela Guerra, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. I invite everyone to read it in full, to understand the scope and the gravity of the crimes charged. Special Prosecutor Jack Smith talks about the 37-count federal indictment against former President Donald Trump. The 49-page indictment was unsealed this afternoon. It's Friday, June 9th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good evening, I'm Steve Brown. Coming up, the latest on the case against Donald Trump. Also ahead, a judge has temporarily blocked Florida's ban on gender-affirming care for kids. It's seen as a win for trans rights, but a chilling effect has left some providers and families confused on care. Homeless shelters handed out masks and schools canceled activities as Baltimore residents endured another day of smoky air from wildfires in Canada and searching for wild bumblebees in California in an effort to track and conserve the species. It's 6.01, now this news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. A laundry list of charges have been outlined in a 37-count federal grand jury indictment against former President Donald Trump. The 49-page document alleging Trump kept boxes of personally picked documents detailing everything from U.S. nuclear secrets to military plans at locations at his Mar-a-Lago, Florida estate. 
According to the indictment, the documents stored in, among other areas, a ballroom, a bathroom, and a shower. The indictment also alleges a Trump aide sought to try and help conceal the documents from investigators. Prosecutors say Trump showed the documents to a writer, a publisher, and members of his staff, none of whom had security clearance. Trump has denied doing anything wrong. He's due in court next Tuesday. Trump, meanwhile, is drawing support from House Republicans in the wake of the charges connected to his federal indictment. NPR's Claudio Grisales reports House Speaker Kevin McCarthy has said House Republicans will use every tool at their disposal to fight the case. Before the indictment against former President Trump was unsealed, Speaker McCarthy said it was a dark day for the country. McCarthy blamed President Biden and said it was unconscionable to indict the, quote, leading candidate opposing him. The Speaker went on to say that House Republicans will, quote, hold this brazen weaponization of power accountable. Other House Republicans, especially members of the conservative House Freedom Caucus, came to Trump's defense soon after they learned about the indictment. However, Senate Republican leadership, including Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, have not commented publicly on the case against Trump. Claudia Grisales. NPR News. President Biden is set to sign an executive order aimed at creating new job opportunities for military and veteran spouses whose careers can often be disrupted by their loved one's deployment. Biden using a visit to recently renamed Fort Liberty, North Carolina, highlight the order. It directs agencies to develop a federal government-wide hiring and job retention program. A U.S. official has confirmed to NPR an American surveillance satellite detected an explosion at the dam in Ukraine. NPR's Jeff Brumfield reports questions remain about the dam's collapse. According to the official, a U.S. spy satellite detected an explosion at the Kohovka Dam on Tuesday. It's unclear whether the blast took place on land or underwater, and there's also no indication of who was responsible. Still, the report adds to growing evidence that the dam was intentionally destroyed rather than failing on its own. Earlier this week, Norwegian seismologists said they had also detected an explosion at the dam around the time of its collapse. Since the failure, thousands have seen their homes flooded downstream and upstream. A reservoir vital to irrigation and the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant is rapidly emptying out. Jeff Brumfield, NPR News. Modest gains on Wall Street at week's end. The Dow was up 43 points to close at 33,876. The Nasdaq rose 20 points. The S&P gained 4 points. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good evening. I'm Steve Brown in Boston. More now on the indictment of former President Donald Trump. Congressman Seth Moulton calls it yet another sad day in American history. Trump faces 37 charges, including willful retention of national defense information. If proven guilty, Moulton says it would be an unprecedented breach of the law. Congresswoman Catherine Clark tweets, Equality before the law is the foundation of our democracy. A jury today found a former prosecutor not guilty of raping a North End woman seven years ago. Gary Zarola was charged with attacking the woman in her apartment. The Suffolk County DA's office says it's disappointed in today's verdict. It says Zarola still faces another criminal case involving similar allegations from 2021. Two towns in Massachusetts are getting federal funds to help protect the coastline. Manchester-by-the-Sea on Cape Ann and Truro on the Outer Cape will use the $4 million to restore salt marsh habitats and other at-risk areas. State Director of Coastal Zone Management Lisa Berry-Angler says a coordinated effort is needed to protect a thriving ecosystem. This can't be done by just one entity or one office. We need the local knowledge from these coastal communities. We need the state's expertise in data. And we need, in this case, a lot of federal dollars. The money is being made available through the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act. 
The community path along the Green Line extension in Somerville is set to open tomorrow. The path provides access to four stops between Somerville and East Cambridge. It also connects several bike and pedestrian pathways, creating a nearly 50-mile continuous network of paved off-road paths. The community path was originally expected to open six months ago. Boston is getting ready for its first Pride Parade since 2019. It starts at 11 o'clock tomorrow morning in Copley Square and goes to Boston Common. WBUR meteorologist Danielle Noyce says anyone going to the parade should be prepared for rain just in case. I do not think it's going to be raining the entire day by any means, and I don't think it will be as widespread as today. But that being said, there is about a 30 to 40 percent chance you get a passing shower. That's where a festival featuring a live, live featuring live music, community organization, and vendors takes place from noon until six. A separate twenty-one and up festival will be held at the same time at City Hall Plaza. In the forecast, it'll be cloudy, a chance of showers and thunderstorms tonight. Some of those storms could produce some small hail. The lows around fifty-three degrees. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Carla Itzkovich, whose gift in memory of Moises Itzkovich, founder of the Moises Itzkovich Foundation, helps provide public radio news and information to communities around the world. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington. The federal indictment of Donald Trump that was unsealed today is now the second indictment of the former president, a former president who is again running for the Republican nomination for president in 2024. And yet most of his rivals for that nomination have so far steered clear of criticizing him for it. Why? NPR senior political editor and correspondent Domenico Montanaro is here. Hey there. Hey, Mary Louise. What is the answer to this question, Domenico? Why do the very people running against Donald Trump seem not to want to use this to their advantage? It is odd, right? I mean, most people in most years who would want to defeat someone they're running against would grab this like gold. But it continues to be the case that these candidates are trying to walk a very fine line in not upsetting Trump's base. And we should be clear that Trump's base, when we talk about them, it's not just some small cadre of his supporters, but essentially almost all of the Republican rank and file voters. You know, Republican pollsters will tell you that maybe only about 10 percent of Republican voters are, quote unquote, never Trumpers. Another third are pretty solidly in Trump's camp. And the rest are maybe Trumpers, you know, people who voted for him twice, but are open to someone else this time around. Still, though, they have pretty warm feelings toward him, you know, for just to show this, the Pew Research Center, for example, late uh, late last year, asked a large sample of Republicans this question, and 60% said they still had warm feelings toward him. It was far less than in April of 2020, when he was still president and before January 6th, and eight in 10 Republicans said they had warm feelings toward Trump. But it's still a pretty sizable majority. And these candidates have really struggled in how to navigate how to get them over to their side. Okay. And that Pew Research you're citing, that was from late last year. But it doesn't seem that his legal troubles since then have affected Trump's trajectory. Is there any reason to believe it will change? No, it's been just the opposite. You know, what Republican strategists tell me is that in the short term, it's hard to see how this will 
will change anything. And that these are people I'm talking to who are not exactly rooting for Trump. You know, what they say is that actually they expect for this in the short term to actually help him, um, that he'll be the center of every conversation for the foreseeable future. And many uh, base voters are wondering why in quote unquote similar circumstances, they say that they have, that there haven't been the same pursue, uh, pursuit uh, from the Justice Department of people like President Biden or Vice, former Vice President Pence, who also had classified documents in their possession. And they ask why Hunter Biden, the president's son, hasn't gotten the same kind of attention. But the cases of Pence and Biden are really not analogous at all to Trump's situation because Biden and Pence discovered the classified documents in their possession themselves, gave them back, and the investigation into Pence has already been dismissed. The one looking into Biden's handling is still ongoing, but still really not all the same, not the same here at all. If Trump's rivals are not all over these charges against him, what are they talking about? It's being dismissed by them as the, quote, weaponization of law enforcement by people like, you know, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, who's, uh, you know, Trump's chief rival in this race. Senator Tim Scott said something uh, similar. He's uh, the senator from South Carolina, as have a host of other congressional Republicans. You know, these Republicans, they just don't want to go there. It's a bit of a chicken and egg for them, frankly, though. You know, many privately will say they don't want Trump to be president again, but they're following his base. But you have to ask, you know, if leaders of the party running against Trump, serving in leadership on Capitol Hill, are not willing to speak out against the former president, even when they acknowledge privately that these are serious charges, then how do they and why would we expect Republican voters to react any differently? Well, and that's the central question. How did we get to this point where multiple investigations, now a federal indictment, doesn't shift public opinion? Well, the seeds of this have been sowed for a long time, so that's pretty hard to uh, backtrack from. You know, Trump himself has has been criticizing the Justice Department and the FBI uh, for quite some time. We've seen mm -hmm. a decline in uh, you know confidence in these institutions that people once revered for quite some time here. You know, it's really been with Republicans where we've seen this steep decline. Recent polls have shown, for example, that two thirds of Republicans say they only trust the FBI some of the time or hardly ever, and a majority think FBI agents are biased against right. Trump. That is NPR's Domenico Montanaro. Thank you. You're welcome. In Florida, families of transgender youth are trying to figure out what a federal judge's ruling this week means for them. In scathing terms, Judge Robert Hinkle indicated that going forward, Florida's ban on gender-affirming care for trans minors will likely be found unconstitutional. But when he issued his preliminary injunction, Judge Hinkle only listed the three families who filed suit. That has caused both confusion and hope for other families and for the medical providers who treat trans youth. NPR's Melissa Block has this report and a warning to our listeners. Her story includes discussion of suicide and mental health. Lisa, the mother of a 13-year-old transgender girl in the Tampa area, says when she heard about Judge Hinkle's ruling, she allowed herself the smallest sense of hope. You know the expression, there's a light at the end of the tunnel, and I'm almost positive it's not a train. <laughs> That's kind of where we're at. You know, we got the merest glimpse that it, it's not a train, that it's actual sunlight. Lisa asked that we use only her first name out of security concerns. Florida's ban on gender-affirming care, such as puberty blockers or cross-sex hormones, carves out an exception for youth who've already started receiving those treatments. That would include Lisa's daughter, who has started on blockers. But what's unclear from the law's language is whether she can now move on to hormone replacement therapy. Critics say it's just one part of Florida's law that's deliberately nebulous. The state of Florida has created such an impossible 
situation for these parents. Simone Chris with Southern Legal Counsel brought the lawsuit challenging Florida's ban. It's not only a hostile landscape for their children, but it's also so ambiguous and vague and confusing, and there's no clear answers as to what is and isn't allowed. In a statement, Governor Ron DeSantis's office called the injunction extremely limited and said, quote, We will continue fighting against the rogue elements in the medical establishment that push ideology over evidence. It is expected the state will appeal. So where does this ambiguity leave providers who treat trans youth? Under Florida law, providing gender-affirming care to new patients under 18 is a felony. Knowing that, should providers risk prison time, risk losing their medical license, and assume that the judge's injunction also protects them? For Dr. Michael Haller, the decision is straightforward. He's a pediatric endocrinologist in Gainesville who treats trans youth. I feel an obligation to do whatever I can to try and protect their rights to receive the care that they feel is appropriate. And if that means that I'm going to have to do things that may push back on the state's interests, then, you know, so be it. Dr. Haller says even before the state's ban was finalized, it had a chilling effect. A number of Florida clinics stopped providing gender-affirming care to trans youth. And when they don't have access to care, you know, you can hear and feel that desperation. The words they use in their emails, the vibrato of their voice when they call asking for help, you can really just feel that it's palpable. So, you know, I hope that this injunction will give people a little bit of a sense of relief. That's also the hope for Lisa, the mom we heard from earlier who told me her transgender daughter suffers from pretty serious depression. At one time when she was having pretty deep thoughts of self-harm, she just looked at me and she said, well, maybe if I'm successful, Florida will be happy. And that, that was hard to hear. And I, you know, how do you argue with that? Because I live in a red county. I live in a neighborhood specifically full of people who voted for all of these people doing this, and gleefully so. How do you combat that? Maybe, Lisa says, this week's ruling from the federal judge will help. I'm hoping that it eases her pain. I hope it eases it completely, but even even if it's just a little bit, I'll be happy. Melissa Block, NPR News. And if you or someone you know is in crisis, call or text the Suicide and Crisis Lifeline 988. This week, the Northeast and the Mid-Atlantic dealt with some of the worst air quality for the area in recorded history. The culprit? Smoke from wildfires in Canada wafting south. WYPR's Scott Massioni tells us how residents have coped and when relief might come. It looked like 2020 when you stepped outside in Maryland this week. People were wearing masks and the streets were a little less busy than usual. The smoke obscured the skyline and concerned people with health issues. It's been really crazy. I mean, I had to really bust out my inhaler. I have it on me right now. Phoenix Barber's a student at the Baltimore School for the Arts. It felt like I was I swallowed a porcupine at one point. It was so like prickly and it made my throat like kind of like clothing almost. Yeah. So I had like a lot of coughing and just uncomfort. Carly Peicher was out walking her dog in the smog, but wearing a mask to protect her lungs. Peicher's been watching the air quality levels. This week, the state government issued code red on that quality, meaning it's unhealthy for everyone. I'm not super educated on what that means, but it sounds kind of serious. So I, um, yeah, just wanted to protect myself. Particles in the air reached 27 times the World Health Organization's health guidelines. 
Not everyone was concerned about the air quality, though. Steve Drake's a delivery driver and is outside most of the day making those deliveries. Ah, today's just a little bit heavy. You can smell the smoke, but as long as it's not heavy and we can still see buildings, I don't think it'll bother us. By today, the air quality improved to some degree. Baltimore is now in code yellow, which means people who are unusually sensitive or have health issues should take precautions. Kevin Estep is one of those people. Estep coaches the Baltimore Bills, a semi-pro football team. His team's playing in the championship this week, but he had to cancel practice because he had a double lung transplant in 2019. Estep says doctors are likely to hospitalize him, even for a small cold due to that transplant. I knew that today wasn't a good one for me, so that's why I called my doctor and see what's the best thing for me to do, and he basically shut me down totally. The city's already taken precautions against the smog. Free masks are being handed out at homeless shelters. Baltimore schools canceled outdoor recess and asked staff to keep windows closed. The city's discouraging people from holding events and exercising outdoors. Even though the air quality is improving, wildfires are still blazing in Canada, meaning it's possible smoke could choke the region again. For NPR News, I'm Scott Massioni in Baltimore. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Good evening, I'm Steve Brown. Ahead on All Things Considered here on WBUR, searching for wild bumblebees in California in an effort to track and conserve the species. That's ahead here on WBUR. WBUR supporters include the Worcester Art Museum with Frontiers of Impressionism, featuring works by over 30 artists, including Monet, Renoir, Cassatt, and more. Now open, worcesterart.org. On Wall Street today, the stocks closed higher. The Dow was up 0.13%. At 33,877, NASDAQ up 0.16% at 13,259, and the S&P 500 was up a tenth of a percent at 42.99. In local business news, the Dave & Buster's entertainment chain will pay more than a quarter million dollars for violating Massachusetts labor laws. The company was cited by the state attorney general's office for not providing proper meal breaks, not obtaining work permits for minors, and allowing minors to work later than permitted by law. Dave & Buster's operates three Massachusetts locations in Braintree, Natick, and Woburn. All the business news will be coming up uh, in about 10 minutes here on 90.9 WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software. Powering the Engineering Design Workshop exhibit at the Museum of Science, mathworks.com slash MOS. And Endless Energy committed to helping homeowners improve energy efficiency. Assessment scheduling at GoEndlessEnergy.com or 775-ENDLESS. If you're used to watching TV when and how you want, well, you can now do the same with listening to the radio. You can pause and rewind live radio with the new WBUR app. You can download it at the App Store today. Cloudy with a chance of showers or thunderstorms tonight. Some of those storms could produce small hail. The lows will be around 53. Mostly cloudy tomorrow. Scattered showers throughout the day. The high around 70. WBUR supporters include the Huntington presenting the Lehman Trilogy. Winner of the 2022 Tony Award for Best Play starts June 13th at the Huntington Theater, huntingtontheater.org. And UMass Chan Medical School, ranked by U.S. News and World Report as best in New England for primary care education. Learn more at umassmed.edu. 
This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Elsa Chang. And you know what? I have always been proud to say that I have never been stung by a bee. But just a few days ago, I was worried that streak was coming to an end. Is today going to be the day? Today is not going to be your day. day. If it is, I have an EpiPen should things get out of hand. But um, no, we're not going to get stung today. Okay. Promises, promises. I'm talking to Leif Richardson there. He's a conservation biologist who leads a project powered by hundreds of volunteers. It's called the California Bumblebee Atlas. It's sort of like a census for bumblebees, a tool to help guide their conservation. I tagged along with Leaf to see how one of these sampling expeditions works, which meant meeting up in the mountains of Malibu. I've never seen insect nets like this except in the cartoons. <laughs> we got our bee nets and a small cooler because we are literally going to chill out the bees we find. It's a harmless way to calm them down long enough to photograph and study them. And today, Leaf has his eye on a particular species of bumblebee, one that he hopes will be the catch of the day. I want to show you today uh, Crotch's bumblebee, Bombus crotchii. This is uh, a big, short-haired, very beautiful bee that is a denizen of the warmer parts of California. Um, we're likely to see it today, oh. but it is in decline. So it's currently protected by state law, and it's under consideration um, for listing as, as a state-endangered species. So we set off. We're walking about a half mile down the trail. So this this is poison oak. I just oh, wanted to thank you. make sure that we... And we arrive at a field bursting with golden deerweed and purple sage. Leaf says this is a bumblebee buffet, but he warns us to slow down. Oh, what? Rattlesnake. Really? Wait, where? Right there. Right there. I don't even... We're really close to it. Let's look behind you and then maybe take a step back. Oh it God. is a fat rattlesnake, a perfectly camouflaged in the brush. I would have totally missed it, probably it would have so stepped on it. So, so we decide to just stay on the trail where we can see our feet. And soon enough, it's time to catch my first bumblebee of the day. See the, where the bee is? She's just below the canopy top. Wait, wait, right, show me the bee. Oh. There. Elsa, do you want to catch that? I want to. Okay. Here's Leaf my, tells me to pinch the tip of the net and hold it upside down. Then I slowly lower it over the flower where the bee is foraging. Lower it slowly. Make a little like seven dwarfs hat. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then, okay, where did the bee go? Oh, there it is. Okay. And I'm just going to go like this. Boom. Okay. Is this a girl or boy? So I'm going to oh. reserve judgment till I okay, get wait. better. This is when Leaf tells me I have to put my bare hand up inside the net with the bee still in there to trap it in a tiny vial. Oh my God, I got it, 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 Let's take it out of the net, okay. we'll find out. <laughs> Behold. Oh my goodness, Leaf takes a closer look and determines this is a male bumblebee, which means it doesn't have a stinger. So he reaches into the vial, pinches the bee with his fingers, and offers it to me. Oh my God, oh my God. If you feel him squirming away, squeeze a little harder. I'm holding a bee with my bare fingertips. 
Oh, he's squirming. I can feel his little legs scraping against my fingers. And the fact that there are male bees out here tells Leaf that the coveted queen bees must be around here too. And remember, at this point, we're also still keeping our eyes peeled for that one species that Leaf had mentioned, the Bombus crotchii. And then boom, all of a sudden, we find a double whammy. Oh my God, that's huge. What is that? Queen? This is a queen of crotchus bumblebee. A queen of the very species that we were looking for. And she was at least two to three times bigger than any other bee we saw that day. And, you know, the excitement, it didn't even end there because we spin around and I see my editor, Christopher Intagliata, looking down in sheer horror. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Whoa. What is that? When he realizes his legs are covered with hundreds of giant black ants. What are those? We frantically brush him off, hike up the trail a bit to get away from the ants' nest, and Christopher recovers. Does anything sting, Christopher? No, I think I'm... I think I'm mostly good. Meanwhile, Leaf puts the queen bee on ice in the cooler. Remember her? And I asked Leaf what gathering all of this bumblebee data up and down the state of California will teach people. We want to let people know what the status of bees is. Are there as many species now as there used to be? Are they all distributed in the same geographic ranges as they used to be? Or have they shifted their ranges because of climate change or habitat loss or conversion or something like this? And so this information that our volunteers are collecting is the information that is used to make conservation planning decisions. So ultimately, why should we care whether some of these species of bumblebees are disappearing? I think we should care because there's intrinsic value to these native animals that occur here and have been here co-evolving with these plants for millennia. However, beyond that, um, bees are functionally very important. They're pollinators of wild plants, but also these wild bees are really important pollinators of crops. So these wild bees are tremendously important to maintenance of healthy ecosystems, which human beings depend on and to the human food supply, which we obviously depend on. So we've got both utilitarian and kind of intrinsic reasons to conserve bees. One of the things that I have loved about today is we have talked about all the ways that bees are misunderstood animals. Because I've always been that person, when I see a bee buzzing around me, I'm like, ew, get away from me, please, get away. But I held my first bee today. I caught my first few bees today. I guess if you could speak to all those people out there who have decided they do not like bees. What do you think is most misunderstood about these animals? Uh, I guess it's that they're considered to be potentially dangerous, stinging, venomous insects. Um, they are they are all of those things. But there is so much more about the way these, these animals live. Um, they have this rich ecological life history. Um, they, uh, they have interesting mating biology. I should mention another one is social biology. The biology of, of the nest is absolutely fascinating and it gives us a model for understanding social behavior in other bees and also other insects and vertebrates like us. There's a ton of interesting things about bees that um, I think if you look beyond the hypothetical dangers of, of being stung by one, that they're really interesting animals. True. Even I can look past the stinger because here I am asking Leaf to open the cooler now so I can touch the chilled out queen bee. Queen bee. Queen bee. Sleepy queen. Oh, oh, not so sleepy. Look at her. She's a flutter. As I stroke the queen's back, 
she raises up her leg, which Leaf says is a sign that she's not too happy. She's giving me the high five, which yeah. is really the middle finger. Yeah, that's right. It's the middle leg. She doesn't like it, but she can't do much about it. But from the looks of her twitching wings, she's warm enough to take off now and find her way home. Okay. There she goes. She goes right. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So they're really good at using landscape features to find their way. She'll find her way, right? Yeah. Okay. And so the queen journeyed back home unharmed. And thankfully, so did we. Tight quarters in those vials. This is NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Good evening, I'm Steve Brown. 60 degrees in Boston at 629. Stocks close the day higher today. Marketplace is coming up next with all the day's business news. In the forecast, cloudy with a chance of showers or thunderstorms tonight. Some of those storms could produce small hail. The lows will be around 53 degrees. Mostly cloudy tomorrow. Scattered showers throughout the day. The highs near 70 degrees. Sunday looks nice. It'll be mostly sunny. The highs will be around 78. Again, right now, 60 degrees in Boston. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. This is On Point. I'm Tiziana Deering. This is Radio Boston. I'm Scott Tong. I'm Deepa Fernandez. I'm Robin Young. It's Here and Now. And I'm Lisa Mullins, host of All Things Considered. We all thank you so much if you made a contribution to our recent fundraiser. And if you haven't had a chance to, you still can. Give monthly at WBUR.org. Thanks. <laughs> 